Sounds good. Lisa, I don't think you're on mute. You might mute. Okay, thanks. Mayor Fingalai, thank you for joining us tonight on May 25th for a special session. Um, and there's two topics on tonight's um, agenda, uh, the largest of which is to receive our report from CityGate. And um, it is probably, I'm not sure fitting or ironic is the right word that it falls on the same, on the anniversary of George Floyd's death, but certainly it um, helps focus some of the dis discussions we're gonna be having tonight. But before we get going, I'll have um, Point O'Neill make a few comments. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everyone. Um, I want to share some housekeeping items for this virtual meeting. This meeting is being broadcast and recorded on the City of Lawrence YouTube channel and on uh, cable channel 25. The public chat function is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. When you are not participating in the meeting, please mute your microphone. When you are participating in the meeting, please keep your video on. When you are not participating in the meeting, please turn your video off. You will still be able to hear the meeting. You can turn your video back on when you are participating. Turning your video off when you are not participating allows the active meeting participants to be seen on the screen. If you have any trouble, please send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute microphones and or turn off people's video to minimize distractions. Please remember to state your name every time you speak for the benefit of those listening remotely. And I'll turn it back over to Mayor Finkeldye. Thank you, Porter. I'll take roll call. Um, Vice Mayor Shipley? Here. Commissioner Ananda? Here. Commissioner Lawson? Here. Commissioner Bully? Here. Mayor Finkeldye present. And before we go to the agenda, I'll have Sherry Wiedemann give us a few reminders about the operation of the meeting. Thank you, Mayor. Um, as you said, I'm just going to provide a few procedural reminders for the virtual meeting. Commissioners, please remember to state your name and title each time you speak. Mayor, after a motion is made and seconded, please call on commissioners individually to provide their vote, then announce whether the motion carried and the count of the vote. City staff, please remember to state your name and title each time you speak. When the mayor calls for public comment on an item, individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. The raise hand function may appear in different places on your Zoom menu, depending on the device you are using and which version of Zoom you have. Individuals will be called upon by name in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. When you are called on, please unmute and state your name. Comments will be limited to three minutes. When the mayor calls for in-person public comment, individuals should raise their hand to indicate they wish to speak. Staff present will direct you to the podium to speak following social distancing and safety protocols. Please state your name before speaking and comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you. Mayor Finkeldye, thank you, Sherry. Um, we'll now move to the first item, which is to approve the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Since there's only two items on the agenda, I assume no one has anything Mr. Commissioner Bully, I move approval of the agenda. Commissioner Nanda, second. 
Mayor Finkeldy, a motion by Commissioner Bully, a second by Commissioner Ananda. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Mayor Finkeldy? <laughs> Aye. Passes five to zero. We'll now move to regular agenda item number one, which is to consider adopting a resolution establishing rules and procedures governing meetings of the body. Randy, I believe you're taking the lead. Yes. Good evening, Mayor, Commissioners, uh, Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. As you're aware, during the pandemic, we've had uh, a resolution in place that allows for virtual meetings like we're holding tonight. That resolution is tied to the existence of state and county emergency orders. There's a chance that those orders may go away this week. So we presented a new resolution not tied to any orders that will allow the city to transition from virtual meetings to hopefully in-person meetings sooner than later. So basically this is the same resolution as we had previously with one big change. We are no longer requiring people while we still encourage people to attend virtually, we are no longer going to prohibit people from coming to City Hall to watch the meetings on TV if they do not have the technology. Anybody will be welcome. However, I will point out that the city will require masks and social distancing at the City Hall to protect those who have not been vaccinated and to protect those who may have a a pre-existing condition that, that makes COVID-19 specifically and extraordinarily dangerous to them. And other than that, we'll continue on as we have before. And this is set to sunset at July 31st, unless of course it needs to be extended or something else. But if we want to start meeting a person earlier, then that can be repealed sooner. So anyway, that's what we have before you. And I, if you have any questions, I am happy to hopefully provide an answer. Mayor Fingalai, thank you, Randy. Any questions for Randy? Seeing none, this is a public hearing item. If any member of the public would like to speak on this item, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature, or if you're present, let Sherry know and she will call upon you. You'll have three minutes. This is Sherry Reedman, City Clerk. And there's no public comment on this item. Mayor Finkelheim, thank you. I'll bring it back to the commission for any comments or motions. Ms. Commissioner Bowley, I move that we adopt resolution number 7375. Commissioner Larson, second. Mayor Finkelheim, there's a motion by Commissioner Bowley, a second by Commissioner Lawson. Commissioner Bowley? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Mayor Finkelai, aye. Passes five to zero. We'll now move on to regular agenda item number two and our last item on the agenda, um, but we'll probably be here for a while, which is to receive, receive the consultant presentation on the comprehensive study of the Lawrence Police Department. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. Uh, Brandon McGuire, Assistant City Manager. Uh, you said a while. I'm not going to make a prediction because the last time I did that, it did not go well. Um, so uh, I, I do have a couple of um, just opening remarks, and, and I will be I will be brief about that um, because there is a good presentation from our consultants, um, Stu, Stu Gary, uh, Rich Ward, and um, Tim Hagerty, who I believe have joined the call. Um, and if uh, 
our consultant team wants to go ahead and turn their cameras on, um, or at least the presenter camera, that'll be great. Um, hi, Stu. Uh, so uh, it, as, as you'll recall, um, about a year ago, uh, the the city manager and myself um, started, uh, I guess, just conceptualizing um, a an in-depth sort of management study of our police department. Um, and we were doing this as uh, the department was un undergoing a transition in leadership um, with uh, the events related to police and community, um, and especially um, uh, in the context of police and race relations uh, that, that really, you know, the country was confronted um, head on with last summer, we realized that the study needed to be more than just a management tool, um, just an internal assessment. And so we, we broadened the scope um, and took some time to uh, think more about what, what the scope and what an RFP would look like for a, a real top to bottom comprehensive analysis that was also um, driven in large part by uh, community feedback and by stakeholder feedback, both internally and some of our external partners in the criminal justice system, as well as the behavioral mental health systems. And um, so we came up with uh, the scope of work that was in the RFP um, advertised uh, towards the end of last summer in October after a uh, selection process that involves some of our um, community stakeholders and other partners. Uh, CityGate Associates was selected um, out of a number of different national consultancies, um, and they rose to the top uh, in large part, um, not just because of their technical expertise, but um, because of their approach to, um, to stakeholder engagement. Um, I think they may even say that uh, the, the extent um, and, and complexity of the stakeholder engagement here may have even surprised them after that selection process. Um, and so they may have learned a thing or two uh, throughout their, their time with us, but um, uh, not the least of which is how do you run a process like this through a pandemic where everybody is working remotely, including the consultants. And so um, uh, with that being said, uh, I, I do feel like they've done a, a very good job for us. Um, they've done what, what we've asked them to, which is provide a uh, an objective, a um, independent third-party expert assessment of our uh, police organization. Um, there is obviously some limit in scope. Um, this is not uh, the full criminal justice uh, plan, you know, criminal justice reform plan. It is focused more on those things that are much more squarely under our purview, uh, but clearly touch on many other uh, related factors um, and community conversations that have been ongoing. Um, and so uh, there were there was, um, like we said, a, a major component of community listening um, and engagement and stakeholder engagement. Um, our city management intern from KU, Andrew Davis, uh, and I see Andrew's camera on, uh, Andrew was absolutely instrumental in organizing, um, not only organizing the community engagement um, portion of this project, uh, but actually, you know, really challenging the status quo, challenging our assumptions about community engagement. And he comes from a community organizing background, um, as well as, as a background in ministry. And, and I think that's important because uh, you really saw Andrew's, Andrew's fingerprints on the community engagement uh, part of this, uh, this project. Um, I won't, I won't ask him to present on it, but um, it, I, I just wanted to point that out because I think it's important to have um, his, his contribution, you know, written, recognized and and understood that it really did uh, not only challenge um, challenge us as an organization but also challenge the consultant to uh, to 
take take the next step in um, what otherwise would have been more of a, I guess, routine community engagement process. Uh, one of the things I'll, I'll point out is, uh, you know, it became clear um, uh, pretty early on, you know, this is when we talk about engagement around um, issues of policing and, and engaging our community, uh, engaging our internal stakeholders too. That's a lot different than an engagement process around a um, parks and rec plan or a land use plan or a um, infrastructure plan. It's much different. It's extremely personal. Um, and, and so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of skill that was required. Um, the city gate team expanded their, uh, their team membership, um, to in, include Dr. Brown from, uh, USC, who has a, uh, a very uh, impressive resume, especially related to social work and, and, um, community organizing. And, uh, we were happy that they worked with us to accomplish that goal, um, to round out their team and bring, um, a different perspective that they didn't even bring uh, when, when they first submitted on the project. And so um, I just point that out because I, I really hope that if we take anything away from the presentation this evening and from this report, that it shows that uh, we really do have some, some important um, fingerprints on this from our community members, our stakeholders who are really, who care a great deal about their police department and about their community. Um, and, and we also have fingerprints on this from our organization as well. And so uh, we look forward to the consultant presentation I won't, um, I'll try not to bias it any more than that. Um, I'll turn it over to Stu. I know that he's got um, a couple dozen slides to walk through. And really what we'd be looking for from the commission tonight is um, some, some good questions from you, pointed questions from you. Um, make sure that you have a good sense of clarity about what the findings and recommendations are. Um, and uh, we'd like to leave with, with a, a sense of buy-in from the commission that uh, we have a good plan to work with or um, any items that need, need additional clarification so we can follow up with the consultant on that. Um, and then we will talk towards the end, um, kind of from a staff perspective, uh, what you can expect from us in terms of follow-up work um, in the coming weeks and months. So with that, I'll turn it over to Stu. Good evening, Mayor and Commission members. If I could have the screen, please. I'll uh, start a screen share in just a moment. Go right ahead. Thank you. I'd like to say at the outset, while I, I'm still on camera, uh, what a tremendous job it was and a pleasurable job to work with your staff and your community. Even though we had trepidation at the beginning about Zoom, I have to say no one interaction was ever stilted. We never felt personnel held back. We really thought the community members, the staff, uh, bared what they needed to say and what we needed to hear. Uh, the police department at the beginning was probably the most responsive ever in getting us electronic data. And I don't say that lightly. Many agencies uh, can be slow to be responsive to a consultant uh, or, or play hide and seek uh, sometimes with information. Uh, they immediately backed up the dump truck and gave us everything and more than we asked for. We had no access issues to your police department or city hall staff in doing this study. Last, I want to thank Andrew Davis. As we pivoted from larger forum meetings to individual community leadership meetings, he and others on your staff really had a, a Herculean effort to ask and take our input and your input as to who to listen to and get all of them scheduled. And the number of interviews was no small feat. And a lot of that rests squarely on Andrew's shoulders, which is unique for an intern. So I want to compliment him on that. Let's start with the PowerPoint. This is a huge study. And not quite yet. 
if the clerk could help me, I'm getting host disabled for screen sharing. There we go. I'm sorry, I'm still getting host disabled participant screen sharing when I click on share screen. Sorry, try again. Okay, thank you. Do you have the PowerPoint up? We do. Yes. Thank you. Brandon and I have already said this is an in-depth study, and that goes without saying. Your charge to us was to help understand the department's needs to transform a changing operational community needs. Uh, we were tasked to align operational needs with community expectations as possible, and also align our look at service delivery with the emerging national discussion on policing and equitable treatment of everyone. Uh, it, it is not an overstatement to say that in every interaction we had since first interviewing for your job through not just George Floyd, but the successive tragedies in the United States, every single policing conversation we had in the team, with the community, with your police department reflected on the national conversation and how Lawrence Police Department needed to pivot uh, to best serve its community. We also were given data to provide a David-driven framework uh, where possible for a new strategic plan and to provide advice on the Community Police Review Board. I always start with all of our uh, public safety clients on policy choices. Uh, in America, there are a few federal or state regulations directing the minimum number of police staffing levels, response times, or outcomes. There are lots of best practices advice offered, but they're just that, they're advice. Uh, in America, uh, police, as is fire and many times emergency medical services, is a local choice, local policy issue. Your policing executives are challenged to identify how to best apply best practices with you, their elected officials, and the communities, of course, they serve in Lawrence. And I say communities, plural. Uh, I don't want to be, be at all underestimating uh, any city the size of Lawrence is a collection of communities and a collection of stakeholders, and a policing strategy needs to encompass uh, all people uh, and all stakeholders. Your challenge as an elected official then is to balance public safety outcome expectations with fiscal responsibility. Also, as we'll touch later in the PowerPoint, the city does not regulate and offer all types of local government services. You're going to need help in social, mental health, uh, street medicine, uh, et cetera, uh, alternative transportation destinations to a law enforcement response from your health and nonprofit partners. 
I've already said we made an extensive document request. We received uh, three years of electronic incident data. We conducted uh, dozens of interviews with commission leadership, uh, CPRB, police leadership, mid-management. We issued uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats questionnaire to the police department members. We then conducted multiple follow-up interviews to clarify. And then we pivoted once we started to understand policing in the department to 24 community listening sessions with over 100 diverse community members. We also interviewed both in small groups and individually county and nonprofit health partners, uh, your fire and EMS chief also, for example. And then we established a public uh, email of which we received 44 uh, unsolicited emails from the public, some with attachments. Overall, 60 key findings and 75 specific actionable recommendations. This is a deep technical review of a large agency and I wanna indicate that severity or ranking is not denoted by the number of findings and the number of recommendations. We took every small operational unit and best and way of doing business, the best practices ground dirt. And in doing so, you're get, they're gonna get a lot of best practices tune-up advice. So just because 75 recommendations doesn't mean you have a broken department to rebuild from the scratch. And I wanna say that clearly right now at the beginning, you have a strong traditional police department. It needs to do better with the community and contemporary policing strategies, but this is not a rebuild effort. This is a grow, embrace, make better effort. Meeting public expectations requires also more than the police department. It's other aspects of local government. Personnel and the department are proud, caring, and want to serve. We never encountered uh, personnel with bad attitudes who are not proud of their community and proud to be serving Lawrence as a police professional. Having said that, the department has to become much more transparent. The department understands best practices for community-centric policing but is not fully engaged on its implementation. Leadership has had progressive thinking, uh, but limited action on follow through. The department is generally organized to meet traditional policing in Lawrence, but lacks community and partner-based solutions. There's a strong need, strong need to increase field supervision, quality oversight and lacking tracking of complaints. I wanna pause here and, and say at the beginning on field supervision, unscripted. Everyone on my team, broader discussions of the George Floyd tragedy in policing circles. The what if comment is frequently had a trained sergeant or lieutenant, had a trained supervisor shown up quickly, would the outcome have been different? And you can look at other policing tragedies in America and say, if a seasoned veteran, higher trained supervisor had showed up quickly, would the outcome have been different? We are not joking around when we talk about how important it is for quality oversight and quality oversight starts with hiring. It's the recruitment, it's the academy, and then those young officers need seasoned veterans. They need their sergeants and lieutenants. The department reports data as the counting of items at times like calls for service, which are outputs, not, uh, not outcomes. There are no goals for response time, caseload management, case clearance, and similar metrics. 
There are no reported measures as part of the city's budget documents as adopted by your commission, and there are no measures tied to the commission strategies. The issue with this is how can members of the department feel connected to the city to its goals and objectives? Without that connection, new hires, promoted and journey level members can't be trained and held accountable to commission and community expectations. It starts at the top and flows down, getting successively more technical the deeper you go below the, the city commission level. No organization is perfect. Uh, we wanna commend the department where we pointed out things they're already aware of and in process. And a big one of those is adopting a complaint tracking software we'll, we'll talk more about in a few minutes. Neither interim police chief has stood still. They've engaged with us and are going after what process improvement calls the low hanging fruit as, as they can. The department needs a strategic plan. It needs response times to high priority incidents are good, at least for travel time, but it needs to focus on uh, its dispatch partners, both county and, and teleserve, your internal non-priority call processing times are sluggish. That's also uh, an issue with your fire and EMS departments. It's not a new issue and county supervision has changed at the regional communication center and they're taking steps to improve. But the data trends we looked at uh, dispatch processing time was sluggish. Many of the police department services I won't touch on in this PowerPoint, but are in the report, consider more of a best practices tune-up, again, not an overhaul. And fundamentally, policies have to be tied to Lawrence's needs. And the policy con conversation we submit starts with the commission and its community. And there will be things contained technically in this report and the national discussion that no consultant or we feel no outside entity should dictate to the Lawrence Commission and the Lawrence community what its standards for community policing need to be. Outside training has to satisfy not just department and expectations, but community expectations. Now, whether you're sending people out to training or you're hiring a trainer in, do the values and syllabus of that training comport to Lawrence's police department needs? Your officers are newer across more ranks, so a focused effort, as I mentioned, on frontline supervision must occur. The best training only works when the personnel are held accountable. And we've said several times in the report, what gets measured gets done. You're measured for success in the police academy. You're measured for success in a field training officer program. Journey level officers, investigators, and supervisors also need detailed measurable objectives and annual performance evaluations that mean something to hold them accountable. I wanna also stress quality and consistency comes from a systems approach. It's not any one element. Quality doesn't come from one policy on the bookshelf. Quality comes from hiring, training, oversight, data-driven follow-through, and holding people accountable. You need the entire system. The entire ecosystem breeds quality. Your alternative response strategies are well understood by the agency and your county medical and mental health partners. Your partnerships that are in existence are more informal without long-term, in our opinion, strategic funding and governance plans or written agreements. You've done some very, very good cutting edge pilot programs and there's a lot of people collaborating on, on the issues. In our opinion, it's time to turn them into viable long-term strategic plans with funding solutions. And again, the commission can't take unilateral action on many of those. 
So four core challenges we felt uh, were capstone uh, throughout the report that we wanted to present in this presentation, community engagement, officer conduct and the community police review board, alternative response systems and training and succession planning. We felt policy leadership will have your greatest leverage across these four things versus telling uh, the department how to exactly implement a software tool to track complaints, for example. In community engagement, all the participants shared various experiences. Some were very personal. Some uh, we offered trauma counseling uh, resources to afterwards. They really opened up, uh, exposed themselves and the tragedy or the issue they had been through uh, to those of us listening. Many shared stories of prompt arrival, professional service, and polite communication, but there was a near universal disconnect across all racial and ethnic groups. White and African-American ex participants expressed concern about the department's lack of diversity and how they were communicated with. Similarly, your Native American participants also expressed limited knowledge of their culture in general and stressed the importance of cultural competency. In summation, the community feedback on what uh, I could call high touch relationship communication issues is almost the opposite of the inter department's internal feedback. They believe they're engaged, that current public affairs and comma, social media outreach is sufficient. We're here to recommend social media out outreach is not community policing. Community policing means a deep embrace about policing, engagement and partnerships in knowing the population and the beats that you're serving. Doing so is going to require additional education, training and new methods of policing with not to the community. This is an intentional sentence. Policing with your community, not just delivering service to the community. And we've identified in the report 10 listening things. Officer conduct in a police review board. Internal affairs lacked data tracking until uh, this spring when they started to buy the software. There was far too many inf informal complaint resolutions. There is a need for a much clearer and robust complaint input process. You hit the city's webpage, it's compliments and complaints, the two C's. Well, what am I trying to do? Where do I go to file a complaint? Significant mistrust was obvious through the listening on both sides of the CPRB and how to deliver community oversight. And in our opinion, that stymied community engagement for both the department and the community. So switching to the CPRB and listening to the community most having negative encounters, we just asked them. Now, you can't say a sample size is statistically significant in a community of your size, but every single random participant we were led to when they said they had a very negative encounter, we said, have you filed a complaint? No, we haven't. No, there's no trust. We don't understand the intake process. Or they've grown up with a legacy of distrust and decades into it as a middle-aged or older adult, Years ago, decades ago, they lost faith that they could file a complaint. You're going to have to penetrate that scar tissue. It's not a better web page. It's not just a new complaint process. Community policing and outreach has to be we care. And if we inadvertently offend or, or create distress, you have to be able to tell us about it so we can make constructive improvement. And that is not going to be believed initially. It's going to take long-term work. They believed the, uh, the department wouldn't necessarily investigate its own officers, even though internally 
They were doing so informally. And many participants believed race, ethnic origin, sexual orientation, or gender identity got in the way of, of having their, comp their complaint uh, taken seriously. We want to also leave you with this positive thought, and this is a positive thought. Nationally, the number of review boards is about 4% of police departments in America. It is incredibly small. It is not just leading edge, it is bleeding edge. Lawrence is at the leading edge of a review board process and you'd be commended for trying. Just because we're saying hit the reset button and start a more collaborative second generation conversation, you should feel very good that you were in the forefront of even having one as a possibility. Their current status, uh, they believe, and, and looking at the, the evidence we saw, they were underutilized. They were provided very little to work with. Again, informal complaint tracking, distrust, not a lot of uh, measurable tracking of complaints and issues. Based on that, the board reacted and drafted a new more expansive ordinance, but was done more at the board level without department or community input until after the draft was completed. So our recommendation is to stop unilaterally creating new versions of an ordinance and stop a pattern of what is, appears to us, we could be wrong, but appears to us to be one-way communication. Immediately convene a working group of key stakeholders with shared interests in any new CPRB ordinance and have the commission again weigh in on what the sideboards could be. Do you want your, your board to be just a complaint review board? Would you like it to be a session or setting where police policies could be broadly listened to and, and promulgated first to the community before the commission sees them? There's different flavors of oversight and review boards out there, and I'm using the term oversight separate from review board. Simultaneously clarify and update the existing complaint process. Don't wait for the next version of the review board. Get started today, and the chief can on updating the complaint process. Let's talk about totally shift gears, alternative response systems. Your department, all of you as commissioners told us, your mental health and, and physical health providers, Lawrence is an enlightened community in that you already know 911 response by police officers and firefighter paramedics is in many cases not needed. But how do we go about fixing it? But the first step is you've got broad stakeholder groups with the awareness working on it. Your police department in Burt Nash started a pilot project that was too limited. It was too limited in staffing. It was not deployed at, at the most needy hours. And even the healthcare community commented that the pilot program, while worthwhile, was in alignment with where the ER department was seeing the most patients by hour of the day and, and day of the week. You've got good county and allied partner planning but you need to go past that with implementable, sustainable programs. And again, just a reminder, the commission uh, doesn't have all the power and all the funding to do this by yourselves. And I wanna leave the, the public in particular, I know the commissioners know this, designing the street level alternative response is the easy part. Stop sending a police officer, send a, send a, a two paramedic uh, SUV instead of a full fire truck. That's the easy part. But persons and patients in need have to go somewhere for appropriate treatment or supportive services or have the services delivered to them. Every community in America struggles with the design and funding of that. The solution requires, again, regional partnerships, 
We do believe a mobile crisis response unit is necessary of mental and social health providers. It's not always emergency medical skills that are necessary. And certainly your police officers don't want to have to be taking into uh, some form of custody some of the people that are encountering non-felony related uh, issues. That response team will, of course, require more training, and we would want the whole department to be better trained on persons in crisis and deploying trauma-informed practices and how to deal with a person under great stress. They're suffering a tragedy. They're having the worst day of maybe their life, and the emotional support in communicating with them under trauma-induced stress is an important skill set. As soon as possible, expand the pilot project with Burt Nash to the highest demand hours. Revisit the training on social service referrals. And again, multi-agency partners need a, need a pathway uh, if you're really going to divert non, and obtain non-901 police response. Fourth shift, training and succession planning. Relative inexperience of many supervisors, trainers, and officers. Community policing and non-901 response. This sounds like a broken record. However, it's gonna take even more education, training, and data measures. You just can't say, let's start alternative response systems next week without the training, the program, and the oversight. The police training officer program was innovative when it was started five years ago. It needs updating and supervision, and you don't have a formal career development program and succession plan framework in the department. We recommend reassigning background investigations to an outside vendor, as is commonly done uh, in your part of the country, or to the investigation staff to reduce the workload on the training unit. The PTO, uh, the new field officer training program, needs a training sergeant. Develop a succession plan, support the training and education needed to succeed over a multi-decade career. And your goal, and I know it is the spoken goal, but to walk the talk and grow your own. You should have the next generation of lieutenants, captains, and police chiefs well along in a developed career succession plan so they know how to grow and eventually lead their department. Pending legislation, national issues. Uh, we've mentioned in the report, uh, Federal House Resolution 1280. So as we get into this now, I wanna say there is significant overlap. And we did a findings and recommendations-based review of everything we turned over in your department. It can become um, awkward to run our recommendations against every published checklist out there. The federal government may or may not adopt what's in HR 1280 today. The state of Kansas may or may not adopt something. The governor's panel has recommendations. Your council and community came up with a, a, set, a set of recommendations. Eight Can't Wait has a list of recommendations. So we've not provided a crosstalk. We took all of that into reflective guidance. And then we said in best practice, what is Lawrence Policing doing? So HR 1280 has nine significant changes. They mirror many other overlapping. This is where I get to know one checklist serves a purpose or whose checklist do you give more credence to? Uh, you all in the community of Lawrence are more than capable of having a conversation about your final policing decision. Uh, independent investigation of police use of deadly force is a national best practice in many communities that's already in Lawrence Police Department policy, and the department's made the long-term uh, goal to achieve accreditation. Uh, 
going on. Use of force tracking software recently deployed by the department should meet the data requirements should HR 1280 pass or other Kansas uh, statutes. The department has a policy requiring the duty to intervene. That's key. If you didn't have, in many respects, a strong department, you, our finding would have been they have no policy requiring the duty to intervene when your peer partner isn't doing it the right way. So you've got some good foundational material. However, the department policy does not yet ban no-knock search warrants in drug cases. That conversation needs to happen. The department policy prohibits chokeholds, except in deadly force. Need to have a definitional discussion about if we're going to provide exceptions at all, what are they? And while a stale department policy, and I mentioned this on page three of the executive summary, does, the department does not train or use carotid artery holds, but the carotid artery hold is still in department policy. You've adopted a national best practices set of department policy, but over years failed to keep them trued up and consistent with the actual training program and supervision of the officers. And that's but one example. So can you go to the policy book and find a policy on carotid holds? Yes. You talk to the training staff, the training syllabus, and leadership, and they say, we're no longer deploying them. Eight can't wait. Again, another very good list. Tremendous overlap with others uh, in the last year. Banning chokeholds, de-escalation, warning before shooting, exhausting all alternatives, duty to intervene. We just covered that. Banning shooting, moving vehicles, use of force continuum, and comprehensive reporting. Well, we've said in many cases in the report, you need comprehensive data reporting, uh, just not the software on, on officer complaints. So Lawrence Police on 8 Can't Wait is, is consistent except for three, shooting at moving vehicles. I've underlined these words, without exception, verbal warning without exception, and exhausting all means prior to deadly force. Every police department in America, every civilian leadership team is going to have a tough conversation about do we adopt absolutes and not give the officers any plan B, or do we adopt a tough, narrow set of exceptions and then through community oversight and investigating every use of deadly force, do we hold the officers accountable to stay within the exception per the policy? On the traffic stops, which is of interest to everybody, uh, a consortium in Douglas County started early uh, in our study phrase, uh, a regional traffic stop study data. They recognized that your department data system and others actually didn't collect enough data about traffic stops to form pattern recognition. So to your credit, the department joined the study, but they're manually, manually filling out a piece of paper on every traffic stop and that data is being entered into the regional study for the study team and the academics to go over. It's not published at this time and given the incomplete data you have electronically, we chose not to publish a parallel study and have it possibly conflict with what we think is a very upcoming and enlightening study on traffic stop data. We've seen the questions, we've seen the preliminary data and believe they're headed in the right direction. Let's talk about listening uh, and organizational structure. When we listened internally to the department, uh, 182 authorized personnel, 155 sworn, the most consistent theme was pride. Uh, they're not a hangdog, oh, woe is me agency. They're, they're an up, we're here to serve, we're can-do, can leaning, leaning forward agency. 
Then they also admit, to their credit, limited experienced officers training new personnel. The juniors training the juniors is one way to say that. The department has a core value of the Lawrence way to deliver what they believe Lawrence has historically wanted and acknowledges Lawrence's uniqueness as a community. The department culture is best termed of best effort and taking care of your calls. Now that's interesting. It, it's good in that it's best effort and I should take care of the, of the issues I'm assigned, but there's nothing in there that says consistent with policy or national reform policing. So what is taking care of your calls mean in practice on the streets? Organizational design, the interim command staff and CityGate agree. The organization should be updated to reflect two bureaus, operations and support. That reduces three captains positions and thus the total command staff by one because you would eliminate the special projects captain now that the police facility is completed. You would increase patrol supervision with lieutenants and add a department-wide data analyst. You have some data analysis today but there's many aspects, not just crime, that need data analysis tracking for oversight. Field operations. In supervision, your patrol sergeants averaged 1.2 years in their assignments when we collected the data, and the lieutenants were promoted in August of 2020. You do not have identified minimum staffing levels 24-7, 365 for frontline supervision of mid-managers. We recommend you increase patrol management which enhances oversight while providing the sergeants increased field supervision. Ask your police chief, are our lieutenants and sergeants, sergeants in particular, out with the officers evaluating and supervising, or are they doing training or, or doing paperwork back at headquarters? They need to be out in the field with the patrol teams. Demand for service softened in 2020, obviously uh, due to COVID-19, all of our clients in any form of public safety saw a dip in workload. So your year over year change. So in many respects, as you look at data in the report, look at 2019 as more of a, a benchmark year as to what normal uh, would have looked like. And you had uh, in 2019, while you had distinct calls for service of 36,000, that came in by phone one way or the other. Officer initiated calls uh, were another 22,000 of that. So your officers are being proactive. They're just not waiting for the small and number of radio calls. Can they measure productivity? Can they paint to where the time goes? No. Get into that in a second. Your high priority incidents over last year, and we did use 2020 here because there are some subtle shifts in 2020 due to the pandemic uh, and the stay-at-home protective uh, requirements. Domestic disturbance, domestic battery, and motor vehicle accident are volumetrically your top three, followed by a couple hundred occurrences per year of overdose and disturbance with weapons. And then you can see the others there get down to uh, a few a month. Uh, the good news is violent crime is not a daily occurrence in the, in the Lawrence community. If you look at calls by category by year, you can see in domestic disturbance, it grew a little bit over 2019 there in orange. Domestic battery went down just a little bit. That's more statistical noise. It really continued unabated. Motor vehicle accidents did decrease a, a bit in C19 uh, year. And overdoses are trending about the same year over year. You get give or take 150 overdoses uh, per year. Mayor. Now let's talk about... 
Sorry, Mayor, this is Commissioner, or sorry, Vice Mayor Shipley. Could I ask Stuart um, a quick question about those two graphs just for clarification? Please. Um, I wanna be sure I understand the way domestic disturbance is distinguished. It looks like a nebulous term, but I'm sure it's very specific. Could you just help me with that? It's, I can't off the top of my head because it's broad made up of smaller data codes and elements. And there's also uh, officer subjectivity in it. And also remember, it's not always a call to a home. It could be at a traffic stop. It could be at a grocery store. It can be in a park on a Sunday. It could, could have alcohol or drugs involved or not involved. Uh, if you want, uh, when we're done, I'd ask uh, Chief Hefley or even Tim on my staff to go more into the microcodes that, that bundle that up. Thank you very much. Uh, by the way, uh, in our other current police clients right now, I will say on domestic disturbance uh, and battery, uh, every community we're involved in is up across the board during C-19. Uh, and, and, and that passes the common sense test. People were locked up together, maybe more than they ever were uh, you know, previously with a normal life-work balance and community saw an uptick. So let's talk about response time. So the light blue part of the bar is dispatch processing. The dark blue is travel time. When you talk about, do we have enough patrol officers on the street and is our beat strength sufficient? There's a couple of measures of that. One is travel time. When something serious goes down, this is 90% of the incidents, at what minute does the clock get stopped in travel times? So let me pause here. We stress to our clients to do not use average. An average response time measure just means the middle of the data set. And the middle of the data set could have responses five minutes past the middle. It could also have responses 30 seconds past the middle. But if you measure fractal completion at the 90% rate, 90% of all calls had an officer arrive on a disturbance with weapons call in 6.4 minutes. That is good, strong response time. Shootings, a little over, a little under six minutes. Stabbing, under five minutes. Kidnapping, six and a half minutes. A little longer to get to some motor vehicle accidents, but the officers know when dispatch, not all are, are serious. Sex kind of crimes took a little longer. Uh, uh, than a stabbing or a shooting. But if you look at your travel times, they're strong, suggesting that the officers on patrol are available to immediately respond. Your dispatch time is sluggish and they're asking too many questions or the software is too cumbersome before they get the officer engaged in a route. And they need to work on getting uh, that down substantially. And they're, and they're aware of that. And we talked with the county communications director who's, who's newer. Uh, and both police and fire are working with them for procedural improvements. We also in the report did some density, uh, density mapping of high call locations. Uh, Yim, this is Massachusetts Avenue. Uh, this is multiple years, uh, but where you have uh, differing populations, differing population uh, counts per square mile, uh, humans drive calls for service, and you're gonna have more calls for service in some types of neighborhoods. We show this to you not to pick on a neighborhood, but as the department starts leaning into data, they have to use a map like this or a graph like this to deploy patrol hours to the best impact. 
So in other words, do, do, at some hours of the day, I'm going to have more patrol officers in some sections of Lawrence than I do others. You have to follow the data trend. We then looked at the hourly demand for public generated calls, public generated calls, not officer initiated. And, and you have more calls for service uh, annualized during daylight hours, especially afternoons, predictable, common pattern uh, in America. And then you have more calls for service uh, late evening, Friday uh, and Saturday night and Saturday and Sunday morning. And my data analyst would look at this chart, and I say this with respect and affection, he looks at a table like this, and before we even tell him what is the community, he looks at the data and says, hey, Stu, is that a college town? Because the pad, the pattern is just, it's just there. You have an entertainment district, and you have a, a lot of youth enrollment, and survey says they go out on Friday and Saturday night, and, and law enforcement staffing knows that and, and deals with it. So then we looked at patrol time workload, and across, across the board, this is total patrol officers uh, assigned work time off. The gray bars are time off, quick headline. You do not have a sick leave, uh, injury, uh, time off, abuse problem. Actually, you're a little low on time off. And, that, and that's the strong, in my opinion, Midwestern work ethic and being proud to serve Lawrence. If they were dysfunctional and didn't want to go to work, uh, your, your leave hours, your injury rates might be higher. But you've got very normal uh, use of overtime and time off. But about well, we can only count in the data today, on average, 20 to 21 percent of where a patrol officer's on-duty time is spent between 911 and officer-initiated calls. They are doing things, but they're not tracking them. So it's, it takes a bit more difficulty to say, well, when do we need to add patrol officers if they're uh, superficially unengaged or doing administrative or community policing 60-plus uh, percent of the time? We've also helped the department understand, and this is a busy table, real quick on the left, is committed hours. And that is um, 365 days. Let's look at 11 a.m., the bright red four there. That means uh, on Wednesdays at 11, on average, four patrol hours, four officers' hours are consumed with calls for service. If you look at the green table to the right at 11 a.m., you'll see minimum, not maximum, minimum staffing is eight officers on duty. So then you look to the right at row 1100 to Wednesday on the right graph and you see 50%. So we're telling the department you're effectively absorbing 50% of your staff 11 a.m. on Wednesdays. We drew a box around the earlier hours on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday because they're going over even the 60% mark. And if a lot of sick leave or training leave were to occur, their current minimum staffing is four. And we're not saying four is sufficient, but you have to draw a line somewhere. They drew it at four. So if only four people were to be on duty, you start to work those four officers pretty hard some, some uh, morning hours. We've recommended clients look at pattern analysis like this, and it could be as simple as staggering the start-stop time of an overlapping uh, shift assignment. This isn't saying I have to go hire more officers to fix morning hours. It could just be the strength of patrol 
and the time off allocations. How, how many do they let off at a minimum time for vacation and training? So in summary, through multiple camera angles, patrol staffing is not yet too consumed by demand. They feel they're busy. The rank and file will tell you we need more officers. We're suggesting first track what you're doing and is the workload consistent with the commission's values on community-oriented policing and engagement? And are the officers perhaps doing some things they shouldn't be doing? Or perhaps are too many officers at once being allowed off for training or vacation? So use a data-driven approach and start tracking more of where the soft time on patrol goes. And when I say soft time, I do not want the community to think they're sitting under a tree waiting for something. They're doing traffic enforcement. They're talking to a sergeant. They could be having an evaluation. They could be in a coffee shop engaging with the owner about problems in that hundred block on that street. Those are valuable uses of time. You just can't track them today. And you don't know how much of that effort is occurring. So as 911 calls or non-urgent calls rise, busier departments find that proactive time squeezed. And when it's squeezed too small, that's when you add more patrol officers because you need a healthy balance between active call time and proactive time. In investigations, really strong unit. Five supervisors, 16 detectives. You also have five patrol officers on temporary assignment, eight non-sworn support staff. Uh, they have an excellent reputation uh, in the region. Currently, when we wrote this, no unsolved homicide cases and their digital forensics team has an outstanding reputation. Four teams for focused issues, which is also best practice. Not every investigator investigates every type of crime. Our recommendations in summary are add an additional victim's advocate. They, ha they have that, that philosophy in one, you could do more. Update the sexual assault investigation policy that's actually underway. Review the generalist officer philosophy and use of patrol officers. So what this means is investigations allows patrol officers to do certain uh, easier investigations while they're out on the beat instead of assigning uh, a 40 hour a week investigator. And that's a fine balance between growing the skill set in patrol doing small investigations, or does patrol get pulled off the investigation time so frequently, they never really get to complete the investigation. So we're asking them just to study and continue a data-driven conversation about how many investigation cases should stay at the patrol level for how long, and how does that impact community-oriented policing if they're also doing investigations. Develop a detailed time use analysis for detectives uh, they're not data tracking severity of caseload management and really can't talk about whether the caseload per investigator is appropriate or not. Animal control, totally shifting gears. It's in the police department. And in August of 2020, when they added the lieutenants, they transitioned animal control to a patrol support function. You have three animal control officers if they're all filled positions and one sergeant are budgeted. And when we heard from the community uh, and not just because the police building was moved, but because when a pet is lost and, retrie and re retrievable at the shelter, it needs police department clearance. It may need its rabies or dog license renewed or a fee paid because the animal was collected. And they have to drive to another building to do it. In some cases, retrieving a pet is a three building stop across 
the city when you're just trying to get Fluffy back uh, from, the, from the shelter. We recommended there are software business solutions. There is no reason, in our opinion, you can't get to a one-stop shop at the shelter counter. And if you have to get on a video call with an animal control officer and establish a payment method between uh, the, the shelter nonprofit uh, and the city. It was, it was a valid critique of customer service. Support and specialty units. Recruitment needs a strategic approach uh, to diversity. Recruitment needs metrics and outcomes, not just go fish and, and think we get what we're needing. Place emphasis on targeting local efforts and being supportive of your equal employment opportunity plan at the city level. Again, what gets measured gets done. Have a strategy. Uh, go out and implement the strategy and then quantify the results and see if you're hitting uh, the marks. In training, uh, we talked about the police training officer program needs a, a supervisor. Uh, ensure lateral hires meet all core competencies to Lawrence standards. Lateral hires come in already with a skill set, obviously, but have to be tuned to Lawrence. They do that uh, to a degree. We're just asking them to be sure it's across the board consistent all the time. Require annual training for all employees related to public engagement, equitable policing, implicit bias, procedural justice, and cultural competency. And when we say all employees, we of course mean all employees. This isn't a patrol officer skill. Anybody that answers the phone, takes investigation notes, follows up with something, an animal control encounter, a non-911 response encounter. If you're talking and working with uh, a civilian uh, in a cross-cultural basis, are you coming at that conversation with some implicit bias and cultural competency, education, and awareness? Other technical recommendation areas, promotion and rewards, performance evaluations tied to outcomes, crisis response team, a SWAT team um, can, can use some uh, tune-up work, as does mobile field force training. Uh, that's crowd control training and response. Um, now, you're not, like many urban communities in America, we're not saying this is the top 10 things you have to do. But uh, on the rare time when you need a SWAT team or you need a crowd control team, you just can't figure it out as you go. Uh, you need training and you need standards and you need accountability. Information services and public affairs need some uh, tuning up. So in summary of the added personnel, uh, animal control services requires several stops. You can do better than that. Improve or replace the records management system. If the department can't get the data out to manage in a timely manner, get a system that will give you real-time management data. This is 2021. Reassign or add at least two lieutenants for 24-7, 365 patrol supervision. Add an additional special victims advocate. Add a departmental business data analyst. And consider upgrading over time or with re retirement and, and attrition, uh, a record specialist uh, manager with a broad skill set as a manager not just a technician. Closing comments. I said this at the beginning, I'm gonna say it again, and probably will still be misinterpreted. You have a traditional, proud, capable department. You have a lot of good DNA to build on. Is it completely transparent? Is it accepting of oversight accountability? 
Is it culturally competent in every interaction? Is it deploying trauma-aware training and dealing with people that have just had a really bad day in their life? Or are they too officious or too brusque at times? Uh, what does it take to cross the cultural barriers uh, with the diverse components of Lawrence? Those are all training, leadership, and support programs, but you have the DNA there to deliver and enhance those issues. The department's strengths are at times diminished by many small points of operational friction or incomplete delivery. It gets back to where's the focus, what gets measured gets done, and the entire management chain has to hold people accountable to get things done uh, on a predetermined uh, schedule or due date. And then it has to go out to the rank and file after implementation, after training, and ask the rank and file and monitor their performance on calls to say, did it stick? Did it stick? And that's an easy sentence to say, but it's going to cost you money because someone has to do the has to do the observational supervision and someone has to produce the data from the incident reports. Externally, the department's not engaged enough with the community at a depth you all want and most communities want uh, in 2021. And we wanna end with this. The overarching need is to strengthen training and leadership at the lower ranks. Training and leadership at the lower ranks breeds quality, it breeds community engagement and inclusion, and it breeds future successful leaders, and it breeds an increasingly strong, more well-rounded policing culture. There isn't a paramilitary unit or an organized hierarchical unit in America that can be successful if the troops on the street, the people engaging with the public, don't have the best possible training, supervision, and quality oversight. And again, in summary, what gets measured gets done. Next steps, uh, 100 plus pages, 60 findings, 75 recommendations. Certainly, even if we spent all night at this, we're not gonna cover every one of those in depth. Uh, so our suggestion to any client at this point is to really uh, reread, reflect on the findings and recommendations. Uh, you could certainly adopt uh, without waiting for a new police chief incident performance goals. And then direct staff to return with a multiple year prioritized deployment and support services plan within 90 days. We could ask for it faster and as needed, modify the upcoming budget to implement the first phase. And, they, and you'll say, well, what about the new police chief? There is low hanging fruit the interim chiefs are already working on. Don't make them wait. Don't wait for someone to reread this study and listen to 180 people and then choose uh, a compatible direction. Get an action plan, start implementing. When the new chief is hired, they can fall into step with the action plan and tune it further once they have their feet on the ground. And again, that last bullet is just to don't wait to implement some of these issues. You can proceed in parallel. And with that, thank you very, very much. I know it's been uh, not quite an hour and uh, the staff and I are here to take questions and listen to all of you in the community. Thank you very much. Mayor Fingalai, thank you very much. Um, certainly a lot in that presentation, even more in the report. So thanks for all your work and I'm sure there's gonna be lots, lots of questions and then some comments from the public. And again, this will likely be a multi 
multi-meeting, multi-month, uh, multi-year process. But uh, let's go ahead and start with commissioner questions. Um, just so the public knows, we'll do commissioner questions, then open it up to the public, and then we will bring it back to the commission for discussion. Again, the um, you know the, it's we're accepting the report, um, not necessarily having any particular action taken tonight, but giving direction. Um, so, questions from commissioners. This commissioner Ananda, I'll go ahead and get started. Um, I I wanted to um, first start by saying thank you for this presentation. I know we've been long awaiting this report. Um, and I think that at least on my end, I'm excited because it has been a, um, a piece that we were waiting for in order to move to action. Um, and I, I think that, that this is a really terrific starting point for that. Um, I wanted to hear a little bit on your thoughts around what you mean when you say community-based policing. I'm going to start, and then I'll ask uh, Richard Chief Ward to uh, to jump in. Um, and Richard, I don't know if your uh, patrol officer French fry uh, story exactly fits, but uh, I'm going to I'm going to start Commissioner Ananda by saying it's a lot of little things. It's not it's not one technique. It's knowing it's, it's taking time to know the people in the neighborhoods and who you're stopping or assisting on small crimes. It's walking into places of business, introducing yourself, getting to know the proprietor or the manager. What can I do to help you? What's going on in this neighborhood? It's following up on data and tidbits. It's being sensitive to patterns emerging and then going back to the community and saying, you know, I think I see a pattern here. Uh, uh, am I spot on or am I am I off base? It's uh, being so open that, that a community member will stop you on the street or in a coffee shop and want to engage you. It's it's asking to track the time. It, did the officers get out of the cars and walk some and engage? And do they go to community affairs and events? and exhibit cultural and diversity competency and listen to different stakeholders. I'll shut up, Rich, and let you maybe be a bit more forensic. No, uh, you said it well. Thank you, uh, um, everyone from the commission. Um, my pleasure to be here. Um, Richard Word, by the way, I guess I should introduce myself from CityGate. I think Stu said it well earlier. He said it's a deep embracement. It's engagement. The ultimate goal is problem solving. And so you work with residents. It's customized policing, unique to different neighborhoods or different neighborhoods, and, and of course, Lawrence. And so you wanna meet and address the needs of, of the different neighborhoods and the persistent problems, those that cause fear. It may not be a shooting at the park, but it may be something happening in a neighbor's home. And so an officers may wanna address uh, traffic issues because they're easy. It's like uh, you know uh, shooting ducks at a pond, but the issues that the community members are, are in need of having addressed is something else. And that's what we need to address. So you have to engage because then you have to listen and then you respond. And then you go back to the community and you say, this is what we've done. And what do you think? Should we modify our approach? Did it work? Let's pay attention. Let's monitor and then we'll come back. Or maybe we, we educate the community after the police response. This is how you can sustain the effort. And you bring in the different resources that are necessary. It may be public works. It may be the city attorney. 
It may be uh, uh, the Burton Ash Community uh, Mental Health Center. You bring in the different resources. So it, it, it compels an officer in good community policing to know what resources exist locally. But as Stu said it very well, I think it really takes engagement, communication, problem solving, and partnerships. This is Commissioner Ananda, thank you. Can you talk a little bit about how to square that in neighborhoods or um, residences where there is extreme distrust with law enforcement? And certainly what you're describing there can be seen as an, a, a tactic for intimidation um, or, or a control of a neighborhood. Um, and how, you know, I think that that has shifted, particularly in the last year, but I think it's been a conversation for longer than that. Um, and the impact of that. What are what are what are the issues there that aren't being addressed by embracing something like community placing? I I would say, and 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 again, uh, my colleague Tim or, or Stu may have more to offer. I've seen that in, in my experience working in Oakland, where there's no trust. But you can usually in a, in an agency your size and an agency the size of Oakland, 700 police officers, we would find people officers, maybe a civilian employee, a community services officer, um, someone that could speak to some leader or some neighbor, some school official, and they can maybe introduce us to say, let's start small, small group meeting. Here's what we are here for. First, we listen, and then you, they'll, they'll expect a response given the lack of trust. Let's see if you are going to do what you say you're going to do, police department. And you start small, name the issue, let, let us address it, consistent with your direction. So we're co-producing, if you will, public safety. It's not just a police response. We're not some occupying force. We're working with the residents. We're listening first, and then we respond. It, and it takes some work. It takes time. It doesn't, it's not a one meeting. It's several. It's, it may be where there's, dis, there's anger first and frustration, and, and the whole history of policing this community has to first be aired before the police can actually engage and do the work but it takes time and patience and, and the right people with good training. Not every officer, I admit, is, uh, is, is well-equipped to actually engage in true community policing. Amanda, thank you. Um, and I have several questions, so other commissioners, if you would rather jump in, feel free. Um, can you talk about, I'm, I'm gonna kind of jump around, regarding animal control, is there a best practice that that lie within the police department or are there opportunities to consider alternatives to animal control such as contracting with um, the Humane Society or something like that? We didn't deeply look at how you might do it differently because there were frankly no complaints or data evidence that, that the actual animal control team wasn't more than meeting your needs. Uh, different communities come up with different partnership styles on that and, that, and that's fine. You know, nonprofit shelters, city, county-based shelters, county-based regional shelters serving multiple cities under J, uh, Joint Powers Authority. Um, what you have is fundamentally working. Our suggestion was to ask staff to put themselves in the shoes of a lost pet owner, and this is the first time they've ever engaged perhaps with their civic structure in the department, and they just wanna go retrieve their pet and ask yourself, if you walk through those steps, would you feel that that was good customer service to make two or three stops to get Fluffy back from the, from the shelter? So I think sometimes back, back to this competency and, and cultural competency and customer service, 
you've, you've really got to train and enforce. We've got to walk in their shoes. We have to look at the world through their lens, not our lens as an officer or a person of our race and background and education and upbringing, but, but, but in, in the context of the person uh, who's receiving a service. So I, I just think it was as simple as, come on, there's, there's a revenue software tool, there's a video screen tool in a pandemic, certainly, that um, make the customer service process a little more common sense. And if you start doing that across the board, if you look at everything that way, you'll yield benefits. You know, back on community policing, you, you can't walk into pick a location. Um, a coffee shop, a barber shop, a church social hall on Sunday, and immediately think that you're going to race 50 years of distrust. Hang out, have a cup of coffee, ask them what's on their mind. Don't express any opinions. And on the next 50 interactions, treat them with dignity, respect, kindness, compassion, and just go out of your way to treat them as equally valuable a human as the officer is and the officer's family and loved ones. Don't, don't, don't jump to them. Oh, I'm here to help and tell me. Treat people like you would want to be treated in that situation, whether it's a lost pet, going to the department to get a motor vehicle uh, sign off, you know, from a, a mechanical violation, getting a record and report, have everybody walk through the process as a customer and say, how'd you feel? Mayor Finkel, I real quick, make sure each of you introduce yourself when you're answering the question every time for the people who don't have video. Thanks. Go ahead, Commissioner Ananda. Yes, Commissioner Ananda. Thank you, Mayor. Um, so I, I, I appreciate that you brought up um, the community policing again, and I, I wanted to talk about kind of timing around this plan. Um, you had mentioned, you know, getting together a plan that would be a multi-year plan, and one of, one of the recommendations was increased traffic enforcement as well as neighborhood watch or neighborhood watch meetings were a recommendation for engaging in the community. But I know that, you know, over the last year, we've seen that those are two very, very dangerous situations for some folks to engage in with law enforcement and, and thinking about how that interacts with community policing um, and increase in both neighborhood watch as well as traffic enforcement along with community policing. How does that timing work when um, those are very triggering events for some of the population in, in most communities? It's, it's a very insightful question and why we're in, in our report, we didn't list 75 recommendations with a, a priority one, two or three. Because as your staff works through them, let's just talk about traffic stops. You're close to getting the data from the study. You need to look at training on traffic stops. You need to look at what you're stopping today and, and is it beneficial to traffic and, and pedestrian safety. You then need to look at the locus of locations where more or less em emphasis is. And when you get the data from the stop study, and, 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 and the interim chief looks at some of the other issues around stops, it might fall to full implementation in the second or third tier because there's something they have to do first. Some of this is gonna require several pieces of work before you flip the switch to different. And that is so complicated and costly, we encourage our clients to step back and really as a civic 
city management, police management team talk about, we have so much new money to spend. It takes a while to recruit people. It takes a while to promote a sergeant, let's say to be field training officer. There's the timing of the academy. I don't want to make it sound as complex as building a power plant on the wall, you know, a, a flow chart, but you've got multiple things that are interdependent and some things prevent something from happening if they're done out of sequence, like recruiting, right? And promotional testing or training. So uh, I, I think as they listen to you to starting tonight and in future meetings, if they hear your, your, your collective values, be stronger, better, faster here than something else, They'll bring you back an implementation plan with that sensitivity, and they're going to have to put a price tag on it if there's a fiscal price tag. And then you'll look at that triage plan and, and different spending and go, yep, it aligns with our values in the communities. So no, no, we're sorry, Chief. Uh, on number 15 on the list, we really want this to be uh, a, a, a six-month A1 priority. Can you tell us why you can't do it faster? And they may have a really sound reason that they can't do it faster. Or they say, you know, I had seven competing things for that money and that timing, and 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 now hearing you, commission, I'll move it up. I'll, I'll move it up from number six to number two, so you can have that kind of value policy uh, input. Uh, it's just not something that we felt as a consultant. We walk in and say, here's the top ten. Uh, you know, you got You got to do them yesterday. It takes preparedness. It takes coordinated planning. Thank you. This is Commissioner Nanda again. And part of that recommendation is around having non-sworn personnel doing things like traffic stops. Is that right? It could. Uh, Tim, do you want to maybe say uh, 60 seconds on community service officers and how that evolves and the, and the data around where you do and don't use them? Certainly. Uh, Tim Haggerty, CityGate and Associates. Uh, no, um, non-sworn police officers could not make traffic stops. Um, any type of enforcement, um, uh, ticket writing, arrest powers, those things would require a sworn police officer. Uh, they could involve assisting police officers on uh, accident scenes, um, equipping uh, a different looking Lawrence Police Department vehicle with lights so that, um, again, you could find some protection for an accident scene, but it wouldn't require a police officer. Uh, any service that uh, doesn't require powers of arrest or that doesn't necessarily involve uh, harm to anyone else conceivably could be done by a well-trained uh, professional with the Lawrence Police Department. We think that in alternative service delivery, um, it's not necessary that be it be a police officer, simply be a professional employee of the Lawrence Police Department. This is Commissioner Nanda, thank you. Um, in, in, regard, in regard to the demonstration interference, you know, I think that um, something that was important in this community was having that space and opportunity to engage in a large group um, protest around Black Lives Matter. Um, but I also think about the January 6th um, insurgents in, in the Capitol. And those are certainly things that we have to think about um, in every community. And I'm wondering, 
what are general best practices around um, creating a policy? So you talk about training and you talk about having um, things available for those instances, but I also think about the policy around that and that's, that's what we're tasked with on the commission. Are there, are there any kind of best practice policies or um, emerging changing policies on when to interfere and ensuring, you know, the opportunity for folks to voice, you know, their, their experiences and to, to speak to that um, with minimal intrusion while also being protective? Um, and is that something that you would be willing to kind of talk a little bit more about. This is Stuart Gary with CityGate. Uh, uh, my apologies, we had a large team and my mobile field force specialist is not on the call with us this, this evening. Uh, but the short answer to your question is yes, there is a tremendous amount of policy input necessary to crowd management, protesting, and the norms and values of Lawrence and that when protests occur, what the commission's policy boundaries are, and then where to protect the public lives or public property, uh, your police department presents to you the training techniques they'll use for your approval uh, if the crowd becomes violent and destructive. Uh, Richard or Tim, jump in here if you want to say more than that right now, but it's a, a robust field with plenty of policy and training uh, input necessary. This is not something you do in, in a vacuum. I, if I could just add again, this is Richard Word of CityGate, uh, Commissioner Ananda. In my experience, uh, assuming you, you, can, you have an organized protest or demonstration, I found great success if you could meet with the le uh, organized uh, leaders, the organization leaders before protest to see what their expectations, what their goals are. And often, if, if they're, again, and you've mentioned that the trust, if there's trust or you built it, you can help them achieve those ends while protecting property and protecting uh, people, nearby people. Uh, that's been a, I've seen that, I've actually practiced it. If, if you can get that pre-meeting and they know what your rules of engagement are and you know what they want to achieve, you can often find middle ground and, um, and actually facilitate a, pro, uh, a protest, a demonstration that may go on for some time. This is Commissioner Ananda, thank you. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to jump to the complaint process um, and talk a little bit about that. In finding 57, it says there is evidence of self-policing by the department due to internal complaints being initiated about department employees. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Stuart Gary with CityGate. Um, the, what I'm about to say, you know, all of you as listeners will say, well, how do you know when somebody tells you something to be true or not, absent written evidence? When you ask enough people at different levels of the organization and you get a consistent answer that it's our culture to handle things at the lowest supervisory level, it's our culture to try to nip things in the bud. We, we, we have to trust that enough people told us the same thing that the culture is trying to self-police. The issue there is how does the culture even know it happened if no one is able to come through the door and knock and say, hey, you know, I was in the, the waiting chairs in the emergency room. 
uh, something tragic had just happened in my family. I was trying to get some follow-up information, and you treated me uh, brusquely or too abruptly or um, gave me an indifferent bureaucracy answer. I didn't feel cared for. You know, so so a sergeant can't coach the officer on that because the sergeant has no way to hear it or observe it. So, um, uh, again, Richard or Tim, if you, if you think there's something exactly more pertaining uh, to the listening you did with the rank and file, but it was pretty obvious that they think they're taking care of many of the low issues uh, themselves. Commissioner Ananda, thank you. And then you think that um, I particularly pay attention to like things like that because I am um, in compliance and um, do investigations internally within an organization. I know that that can be effective and neutral and unbiased, but it can't be if there's no kind of documentation or accountability associated with that um, or even written responses. So I appreciated you pulling that one out. Um, I think that one of the one of the things that at least for me as a commissioner was um, very important in this conversation was um, your review on the 12 items put forth by the commission. And I know that you've touched on several of those, such as a CPRB, um, such as um, alternatives uh, to policing, um, certainly the mental health response. Um, and other items. I think that for me, some of the things that I was hoping to hear about um, include um, the, the impact of decriminalization of poverty and addiction, um, and then res response to non-emergencies by other um, community, um, other city employees. Um, and then also the last one on broad community safety, um, which is um, consider community safely broadly, including public health, economic equality, environmental design, and other primary prevention focused safety considerations and invest accordingly. So um, there's a fiscal piece to that, but there's also a very um, kind of intersectional lens on looking at these issues from that perspective. And obviously, um, you are in public health um, or engaging in that, but I did hope to see some really innovative um, thoughts and ideas on what are the possibilities? What do we not know we don't know? Um, and how can we really be um, on, on um, you said the bleeding edge earlier, but when we really look holistically at what community safety means, what the role of law enforcement is, um, and how that intersects with so many other pieces um, that speak to primary prevention, particularly um, around crime, including poverty, mental health, addiction, um, multiple issues that impacts folks on a daily basis and how that can really be um, a holistic um, movement toward real impactful long-term community-based change and how law enforcement intersects with that. So can you, I mean, I know that's a huge question, but I also know that you've seen these 12 items and you've been looking at them throughout this study. So um, maybe you've had an opportunity to just give a little thought on those three in particular around decriminalization, responding to non-emergency um, calls, and then that broader definition of community safety. Uh, thank you. We, Mr. Aguirre with CityGate Associates. We were very well aware, of course, of the 12 as well as current council 
strategic priorities also and, and, and your spending patterns. And it's, it's this entire uh, 360 universe of factors with regards, with regards to those three on decriminalization. No, normally a performance audit doesn't forensically go in and get the case data to say how many uh, uh, stops or arrests or failure to prosecute um, are excessive or a waste of resources. And I'm, I'm gonna say waste carefully because a waste in your community could be different in another community five states away. What we did find with your current police leadership and the limited data they have in, in their case management and your new district attorney, a real embracing of let's get the data and have the conversation. So I think, I think you're ready to ask them as part of the implementation plan just to come back with how are we going to get the data and have a constructive commission and district attorney conversation on decriminalization. That's one. Number two, with alternative response, we, we actually did give you, uh, we, we felt a, a very good overview of just how far the county uh, health, mental health, Burt Nash, the new tre treatment building um, have come along. And we found that to a, a person in all of those institutions, they are ready to lead, uh, if, if, you, if you could afford it, the United States in alternative response, destination care, support, transition out of homeless, transition out of drugs, et cetera. It became apparent to us that none of the leadership needs convincing it's the right thing to do you now need to sit down and hardwire a, a decision framework and a strategy and a funding plan. And I, and I know that's difficult because the county and the state and Medicaid this and, and county health pressures on the hospital emergency room that, but everybody with major money and talent has got to sit down and say, within the construct of Douglas County and Lawrence, how are we going to design um, a, a different set of, of tools here. And I think you've innovated enough that you kind of know what works. And what we heard was we need to hardwire it up and we need to fund it for sustainability. And we've got other communities that are nowhere close to having that conversation. So, so take credit that you're, that you're that far into it. You know, you've had the tough conversations. Now it's getting data and money and, and joint venture agreements uh, in alignment. Um, and I'm not talking years or years. I think part of your, 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 um, the consortium's frustration is you're all understaffed. Uh, the, the, you know, a couple of county, uh, hospital staffers, they're, they're doing metaphorically seven different jobs. No, you know, some of them are doing seven different jobs and still doing frontline training while trying to manage implementation of, of new programs in a building. Someone's got to step back and say, who's got the bandwidth? to get something really critical done and you get the pathway figured out, decriminalization legally and supportive care before you can begin to train the police officer what to do different or the mental health team what to do different. Like, could you go hire mental health people tomorrow and put them in SUVs? Sure. Then they're gonna come to a police chief and the healthcare consortium and say, so what do we do with them? I can be supportive on the street I can suggest things, 
uh, but it may not be effective to give them a wallet card and say, call 1-800-HELP-CENTER. you know, help center. Um, Most of them need, need more intervention than that. Uh, Tim, you uh, also know a lot about the inner workings. You want to append anything to that answer? I think the uh, Tim Egerty, CityGate Associates, uh, I think Stu uh, hit on the critical point, having a place uh, of care uh, to take people. Um, there are people out there doing great things right now in Lawrence and other communities, but it's uh, triage only, and it's like an ambulance that shows up, and there's no hospital to take the person to. Um, I think that that's uh, in communities like Lawrence, that are um, pursuing uh, alternative care, mental health care, having crisis intervention uh, places. Uh, the, the big money requirement, a physical staffed 24 uh, seven uh, location that's even capable of dispensing medications. Um, that's, that's, that's expensive and it's long-term, but there are communities uh, that are doing it. And um, one would just have to look down the road in uh, Riley County to its crisis stabilization center uh, as, a, as a huge success, uh, reducing repeated calls uh, for service with the same individuals and getting them the help they need while there are no beds at the state hospital. So uh, I echo Stu in, in that you've got a group that's, you don't have to convince them of anything. Uh, it's now, okay, what's the structure What's the system and the process that we can put in place and uh, and the physical structures that are necessary to make this work? Sure, Gary, again, CityGate. One thing uh, I could have mentioned in the PowerPoint, and I was surpri uh, surprised, uh, dismayed to hear it uh, yet again in Lawrence. I've heard it our larger metro and countywide clients but your emergency medical leadership staff, uh, the number of days, not hours, days that mental health people have to be husbanded in the ER or on a gurney in the hallway because there isn't the mental health acute care receiving beds available. So part of this strategy and multi-agency conversation has to go find the neck of the bottle and say, we can, we, we can build everything except if we can't fund inpatient mental health care or in outpatient, you know, transitional care, uh, what are we going to do? Um, so I, I've, I've heard Metro City say it's not uncommon to be acutely short of mental health beds and to have the ERs too full of even people with, with law enforcement holds. Uh, but right there in Douglas County, you've got the same problem. Not enough, not enough mental health throughput. Uh, maybe more some hours a day, some months of the year, your healthcare system's got exquisite data. They know where the pressure points are uh, and they've got to be resolved. This is Commissioner Ananda. Thank you for that. And um, I appreciated the, the chapter on the engagement with public. I think that um, you mentioned that there were four questions asked in the report. Um, I think only one of them was really gone into in depth, but one of um, one of the questions that I had are just, you know, even wanting just a little bit more fleshing out of what that experience was like, who was spoken with, what are the broad demographics of those folks? Um, 
Because when when I think about like most had a good experience, was it a preponderance of the evidence, 51 out of the 100, or was it 98%? Um, and you know, what was the demographic makeup of those folks who had mostly a good experience? Do you have that available to talk about a little bit? Rich, I'm going to start let you, let you uh, who did a lot of the listening also uh, jump in. We made an intentional decision that we would not be taking uh, hard data and copious notes to reveal identities. We wanted it to really be a safe conversational zone and that we felt we could take the broad brush temperature uh, without trying to, to count things into an Excel a pie chart or bar chart. So it, it was really diverse, age, gender, sexual identity, race, culture, probably religion. Uh, I, I think uh, many of those were known to you because they're civic and community leaders. I'm certainly a city staff could share the, the, the names uh, with the commission, maybe that were invited. I don't know what degree of anonymity they were, they were promised, but I felt we really got the transparency you all expected by, by not trying to, to um, social science it, uh, uh, to a T. I will tell you both Dr. Brown and Richard Ward, though, were firm in their conviction of what we said in writing. There was a complete disconnect between the external and the external uh, on many issues. And that that disconnect transcended race and culture in many cases. So uh, it's even harder to put that data point. I've only got a sample of 100, right? And, and it's not that it was only race-based, others supported race or, 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 or gender uh, statements by others, let's say in a small group call of four or five people, somebody would say, yeah, you know, I've seen that too. Or yeah, you know, I have an aunt or uncle who experienced it. Uh, so it was a little more organic, but we, we felt that it wasn't so scattered that we couldn't make heads or tails of it. It was so solidly consistent across all representations. We wrote what we wrote. Rich, do you want to, uh, add to that? Yeah, I'll, I'll try. Uh, again, Richard Ward, CityGate Associates uh, Commissioner Ananda. It was, uh, I enjoyed speaking with the uh, Lawrence community. Uh, I, I only wish I could have been there on the ground to do it. I think we would have learned and gleaned a lot more. But speaking to, 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 to the whites and African-American, Native American, the business community, the LGBTQ community, uh, activist groups, uh, not everybody was, of course, pleased with the police. I would say most were the business community wanted more traffic, but even those that were very supportive, they would often say, look, but I have some African-American friends, I have African-Americans in my family, and their experience with the police has not been good. And so they were even sensitive to those issues of, okay, you need to do better. But it, it's almost consistent, even those that didn't have the trust of the police and those that did, they wanted to see uh, compassionate uh, police officers out of the car, working with youth, uh, they wanted to see more of that and not simply officers rolling around in police cars. Um, that was a big, they want to see some on bicycles. Uh, what policing did before there were cars, I think they would love to see that. Um, and I know as, as a former police officer, we, we tend to want to get stay in the car because it's easier, you have air conditioning and I can get to different places more quickly. But that that going back to originally what policing was, which was foot patrol and then some bicycle patrol before we moved to vehicles seemed to be a consistent theme I heard. 
but uh, we mentioned it and stewed it earlier in the presentation, this whole idea of working with the African-American community, being genuine, outreach, listening. You may take some verbal abuse, listen and come back and listen some more and listen yet again and respond to what you're hearing and don't do, which we have a tendency to do in policing, to do what we want and not to respond to what we've heard and what people have told us. But the listening was, was uh, I, I, I believe it was credible, very credible what we've heard. And a lot of it, of course, is reflected in the report in this presentation. Um, the, I, I, I'll be honest with you, and, and I'll, I'll say this, as a, as a chief, former chief, I'd be upset that, that you, as a city, had to go out and do this because I'd want to, I want to be the agency. I want to be the one to go do it. And I would hope the department now says, okay, we've got to step up. The listening has to be something that we do and has to be a part of our business going forward. Commissioner Ananda, thank you. That's all the questions that I have for now. I really appreciate you taking the time to answer all of them. This is Commissioner Larson. I wanted to follow up for just um, one question with uh, that Commissioner Ananda had, and that is about the community policing. You spoke about the, the fact that community policing is a lot of little things. Are there any models out there that communities are using that you think have been real successful at um, implementing uh, more community-based policing? Uh, if I could, again, a rich word of uh, CityGate. I have not, and I don't know if my colleague Tim has, I have not seen an agency a full agency that has embraced the community policing philosophy would typically seem to default in my experience to units. A unit in the department is the engages in homeless outreach or mobile crisis of uh, some foot patrol, some bicycle patrol. Uh, I have not seen a whole department embrace the philosophy and act on it because I mean you're performing different roles in policing investigations you're working with youth traffic enforcement you're taking uh, calls for service. So I do think the unit is key as long as there's communication with the officers in, in general about what's happening. Here's what I heard in your beat, Officer Smith. Uh, I need you to go follow up with that victim that I spoke with last night. It's on your beat. I took the report, but I need you to follow up because this is your beat. So there has to be communication internally. Uh, it, it's not as easy as it may seem in a department of, you know, 150 or so people. It, it can be very difficult, but that's really important. It takes supervision. And I think this speaks to the need, as we, we highlighted in, in the uh, report, about our strategic plan where the department says, okay, we're going to take this balanced approach, prevention, intervention, and enforcement. They may not be the prevention or uh, uh, leaders in prevention or intervention, but the officers will often identify the need for those resources. And they say, okay, we're, 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 we've learned the need. Our piece is primarily enforcement, but the prevention piece is here. Let's get that agency involved or those agencies or those people involved. There's intervention, there's substance abuse and homelessness and outreach. The police can often be the agency that can bring in the resources needed because they're first on the scene. They've seen these things at 2 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Uh, that needs to happen. That needs to be part of a larger strategic plan tied again, as Stu said, and as Tim has written in the report to the city's plan, strategic plan. I think that's so important, especially for the new chief. He or she has to embrace this and say, okay, I understand, I got it. This is why I have the job and this is what I'm gonna get done. Uh, Tim Hegarty, City Gate Associates. Uh, to follow up on that, Commissioner Larson, uh, yes, I've seen some very good uh, police departments engage in, uh, I like what Rich called uh, co-producing of 
the problem is, and I've seen this as, as, as often, is um, a new chief will then come in and it will, it will go away. Um, and for, because the new chief wants to bring in his, his, uh, his style, his plan, his whatever, and it gets lost. And then another chief comes along and okay, now they're putting it back into place. Uh, so I've seen it. I have not seen it consistently from chief to chief to chief in the same location. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate, but I have seen some communities and some police departments do this very well. Commissioner, I kind of, I, I am froze up there, so I'm sorry I didn't catch that last end of that. Uh, so the last thing I that uh, basically the the point is that yes, I have seen some uh, excellent models, but they are not consistent from chief to chief to chief within the same community because there's a tendency uh, with turnover of leadership to also um, bring turnover of whatever it is that agency is doing um, in favor of the new leadership. So I have yet to see any place do this well, no matter who uh, is in leadership. Commissioner Larson, thank you very much. So I want to kind of uh, just kind of step into the next step there as far as with the strategic plan. You mentioned that um, as, as part of the, you know, the community-based um, policing. Um, throughout the document, I, I got what I read, um, one of the overarching things was the need for the police department to come up with a strategic plan that aligns with the city's the commission's strategic plan. One thing that surprised me, though, was I didn't see that in the next steps that you recommended three or four next steps. Um, anything about the need for having a plan that aligns with what the city's um, goals are um, for strategic planning? Can you talk about that? Yes, yeah. yeah, Stuart Gary, CityGate. Um, Sorry, the, the next steps is, is abbreviated uh, the agency and from the city managers on down and the interim chief. When we say come back with an implementation plan, that will not be a one pager. They're going to list an actionable time, a priority and a resources needed on each one of 75 recommendations. And that's your policy ability to hold them accountable to say, what are you going to do, what, when, uh, how much in depth, here, here, and here, and, and what not is just the cost, but the political social alignment with what you want done. So that's why that implementation plan is detailed. It's going to take a little bit of time uh, to get the, uh, the inner bureaucracy, both police and city hall, uh, in alignment. They were already leaning towards doing a strategic plan. Now, with this study, we would submit they have a lot of listening and community values and the needs improvements to then go talk about what are our published core values, driving strategies under the umbrella of the commission strategies. So, so we want them to step back and say that the civic strategy, and just to say, is number two. It doesn't matter what number two is. Number two gets subdivided into maybe three police department strategies, 
that maybe become four goals and seven objectives. And you see how the deeper you go from, from, from the upper level of the commission, you start internalizing and operationalizing to finally you to the, the people and the resources to accomplish that objective. And when you take that strategic plan, you report it out annually as part of budget and goals and accomplishments. You also hold individual officers accountable in their performance evaluations. We've talked about this with city staff. Managing for performance isn't a one-page annual evaluation form. It's a set of how did you perform to your assigned goals and objectives within the strategic plan and the department's core values, and did you meet the due dates and the implementations that we tasked you to do? Officer, Sergeant, Lieutenant, Chief of Police. You have to hardwire all that all that together. So uh, sorry we didn't mean to say it was it was oversimplification, but the staff knows what that bullet means, which when you get a consultant study like this, they've got to come back and tell you uh, how fast and with what resources they're going to do. And you hold them accountable. You want to report back on all 75. And if some they disagree with, if some they think are too expensive, that's for them to take up with, with, with all of you. That, that's, that's the normal policy trade, trade off and balance con construct. Um, some of those recommendations I would imagine could be trodden on maybe for the positive by federal or state law changes. They're gonna have to keep an eye on the evolving regulatory framework. And certainly you've gotta go engage on exact implementation with, with the community review board members your district attorney and police leadership. So out of those conversations, they might say, I'm just picking a bracket, um, five different recommendations fall broadly under a work plan to revisit the community police review board and officer accountability. And we think here's the stakeholder list, commissioners, and here's our work plan to do that over the next seven months. And I'm making numbers up as I go. But you see how they can then actualize pulling those recommendations into a work plan that in seven months, you're going to hold them accountable and say, so how'd you do? Do we have a new ordinance? Uh, do, do we have the internal affairs tracking software implemented? Are we now tracking all complaints? Do we have the website fixed? Do we have multiple ways for, for community members to show uh, both satisfaction and dissatisfaction? Maybe a longer answer than you wanted, but that's that's what that means is they've got to they've got to come back with the whole meal not not a kumbaya one-page memo saying we accept the recommendations trust us we'll, we'll get to it eventually I, I would not accept that back and i'm not saying your management team or interim police chief will will do that either they they know what needs to be done Commissioner Larson, thank you very much. That was uh, that was a very thorough answer, but I really appreciate it very much. So one more item I wanted to touch on was the Community Police Review Board and this issue of trust. Um, that's pretty much what I read throughout that chapter was there was definitely not trust between the two parties. But what I didn't see in that chapter was the reasons why. And so I am very curious as to why is there such mistrust between the police and the police review board. Uh, 
I'm going to start Stuart Gary with CityGate and Rich Ward listen to all of, all of them with, with me and the community members. And I want to give them all space to speak for themselves when they can get around the round table and have some, some active listening across each other, not, not through the media, not through written um, documents. We said something profound in, in the study, and we footnoted it, I believe, off the top of my head. A successful community review board process, whether it's only review or oversight also, really takes multiple stakeholder engagement between the, the POA, the leadership of the department, the community leadership, the district attorney on some issues in some cases, to, to problem solve together, well, if something happens, what pathway does it take? Uh, what are our statutory obligations under, under Kansas or federal law? What are the officers of Bill of Rights and protections that have to be understood? Um, and I don't believe, this is my personal opinion, just listening to all of you, you and you in effect asked for my opinion, Commissioner, there wasn't enough crosstalk and mutual support it was more done than done with. And then because it was limited to a very narrow scope and there was no tracking in a, in a culture of internal handling of issues, the department wasn't as forthcoming with things and the board sits there and says, well, what are we here for? Natural human reaction. You also have multiple parties in the conversation with scar tissue going back years, if not decades. And you may or may not need a neutral to help them facilitate the conversation that we're in the here and now, 2021, post Floyd and every other tragedy uh, since today's anniversary in the last 12 months. And how are we gonna handle oversight and, and civilian review? And let's not keep talking about what happened in 1985. What happened in 1985 was probably an aberrancy for 20 different reasons due to culture, training, and regulations in that era. But in the present, how are you going to go forward successfully with community oversight? Is that, is that enough for you without me calling out names and circumstances? Again, very candid listening, and you're asked for our summary opinion. Um, there's there's perspective on all angles and there's shared responsibility on all angles. And I didn't use the word blame. I said there's shared responsibility to work together towards a common goal as dictated by the commission. Get it done. And, and I don't, I, and the only thing I can, is a bad metaphor, maybe you got to come to the round table in Paris. You got to start over. And you get and with there will be review and oversight. That's not negotiable. So how are we going to do it within the regulatory and the community constructs and to have a better community? And how are we going to serve every resident and business and employer, not ourselves as individuals in any one official seat, be it personnel elected or appointed? We're not serving a party of one. We're serving the community of Lawrence to have a healthy relationship with its police department. 
Rich or Tim, any or uh, more Rich, you you did the listening. Is there anything I yeah. I forgot there? Yeah, th thanks to again Richard Word, CityGate Associates. Uh, there were a couple of statements from the board in in the police department that stood out to me. One from a board member said, uh, I, "I don't know if he said we or she or we or or if it was a personal comment, but he he said we don't know if the police department is doing a good job. If they're doing a bad job, we don't know what they're doing." And another from the police department we heard is they want, they, the board, want to review everything. Uh, and so you can see there's a lack of transparency, a lack of communication. Uh, I, I think I posed an extra question about follow-up if the board makes a request for some information. Is the police department responsive in getting back to you? And, and the response was essentially... Yeah, it's all surface material. It's nothing of substance. It's not. It's it's not transparency. That's the key word. They don't feel the police department's being transparent, and the police department, I think, is feeling these people want too much control over issues about which they don't really understand yet. And so I think there has to be a stew set. And as we say in the report, there has to be this this restart. Not you don't abolish either party, of course, but restart to say, what is it that we want to achieve? You want community oversight of the police department, not, not the nuts and bolts, not the minutia, but some of the bigger, bigger issues, complaints, maybe the nature of complaints, maybe the nature of the personal actions taken without mentioning the names of those involved, policy, training, hiring processes, uh, your complaint process. Uh, how do you notify a complainant if, if, if he or she uh, if the complaint was sustained, proven to be correct, do you notify the complainant? Well, what do you what do you tell officers? You know, you can do that without violating the privacy rights of an employee. Commissioner Arson, thank you, Rich. Actually, that provided me with some very good information. I appreciate that regarding the trust issue of not being transparent enough and not trusting and wanting to do feeling as though they wanted um, the, the board, they wanted the board wanted to have, you know, more control of their minutiae, so to speak, I guess. So that I, and, and I can appreciate that, but I do believe that if, if we're, um, and I agree with you, Stu, that we're going to have some sort of review board um, or oversight board. I don't know what, it, how it's going to call pan out, but in order to make that work, we've got to get to the bottom of the trust issue. If we, if either party cannot trust each other, then there's really no relationship there to really build on. And so I'm very concerned about this, just basically the wholesale statement in the report, just one statement said that the police staff don't, don't trust the board. And with no other language in there as to, you know, what, what evolved um, to make that statement. So, so, you know, I'm very concerned about the trust issue. I think that's something we really need to focus on. And I do appreciate your recommendations for it. I think they they merit some further review um, for sure. So, so again, I appreciate that very much. Could I, Stuart Gary, so you just gave inadvertently, uh, gave uh, me uh, the opening for a clarifying answer. When we talk about trust, it's trust in the old ordinance and the board as designed or not designed for what purpose? I want to be very clear. No one did something to somebody else on the two sides of the equation that was bad faith or broke trust. So there's a distinction here in trust, right? You tell me you're going to do something, you renege, and we, you have broken trust with me. That's that's not it as much as 
we don't trust the construct of the of, of the review framework and because and that that half didn't understand when the review board said well we're here ready to work want to help our community and we're given inconsistent non-transparent at times or not conversations that align with their individual or collective views or review, which by the way, probably didn't completely align with the ordinance they, they started down the path with. Mm -hmm. so, so as the two sides weren't quite meshing with shared vision, then it became a trust issue as to about, well, what are you really here for? Why'd you ask for that? Well. You asked, I asked for that because, well, because is it in the ordinance, so you don't get it. And, and there's just a lot of friction. Uh, Rich, is that a fair restatement of what we heard from, from all the parties? Not, not, not that somebody did something and broke trust. I agree. Commissioner Larson, thank you very much. Appreciate that that um, answer. I do have just like three minor data points that I just want clarification on. And one, um, one of them is on page 57 on the utilization rates. Um, did I understand uh, you to say that the utilization rates were based on the 911 calls and the officer initiated calls only? Is that correct? Drew Gary, yes, that's correct. So, okay. so the soft side of utilization is not trackable. Okay. There's just, uh, well, excuse me. The, the department will tell you they have a few other data points that they try to track, but they're inconsistently tracked, not data enforced, and there's not enough of them. So when you actually go on that data path, there's not enough substance to draw a, a, an inference from okay. today. Commissioner Larson, thank you. Um, another data point I have a question on is page 62, where you are talking about. Um, Response time summary, about middle of that paragraph, it says only 6% of dispatch calls are generated through 911. Can you explain that? that? Am I reading that wrong? The other 94%, where do they come from? I'll ask uh, uh, Tim Hegarty to also jump in here. Uh, essentially, in your community, you, you, you have a bifurcated system of a, of a well-trained community. Oh, by the way, you get credit to only dial 911 in really, really, really serious stuff. Otherwise, you, you call the seven-digit PD number and you get what, uh, we've used the term in the study, the teleserve officer, hey, I got a problem. You know, came home, my house is broken into, no one's here, house is safe, I don't need an armed response, but I, I, I need a report and an investigator. Uh, Tim, is that a fair high-level restatement of why the 911s are so small in number? Uh, yes, uh, Tim Hegarty, uh, City Gate Associates. Uh, so a majority of the calls based on the data that we receive uh, would come in through an administrative line to the police department. And then uh, the police department uh, would then go to the dispatch center or if it's after business hours, uh, administrative line straight to the dispatch center. And then uh, one follow-up point I wanted to, to make on the, your first uh, question uh, utilization rate. And, and I do want to say that uh, Stu is right. There's a lot of things that aren't captured by uh, the PD and its software. And there is also a, uh, and I've seen this many, many places, a cultural 
tendency at the Lawrence Police Department to stay what they call in service. So as an officer, I respond to you, you've reported a break-in and I finish with you, but I've still got a report to write. And if I were to be true to um, record keeping, I would stay out of service on your call until that report is done. But if I'm showing out of service as an officer, then other officers are having to do work that I might have to take because it's my area. So there is a tendency to, once an officer would clear, finish with you, they would show themselves back in service, but they would continue to work on your report. So that time is not really being captured. It's showing that they're in service, but they're really not because they, as a culture, they want to do, they want to pull their own weight. Uh, they don't want to show that they're tied up so that other people are handling calls for service in their area. And uh, very common, very common in policing. But because of that, you don't always capture that whole block of time that's associated to your call uh, that they probably should. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Commissioner Arson, thank you very much. So one more question on data, um, just a data point that kind of caught my eye. And it's on page 64 when you talk about traffic stop, stops. You provide a lot of data, national data, um, for fatalities, um, accidents, and so forth. Do you have any local data um, as to the uh, number of uh, accidents that were there were fatalities or injuries? Do you have any local numbers? The, the data that we uh, received, and a lot of it was anecdotal from the police department is, is not surprising. Uh, it's, it's seen other, where, other places and communities of Lawrence, uh, Lawrence's size during the pandemic. Uh, accidents generally trending downward. Uh, injury accidents generally trending downward. So a high accident location in Lawrence uh, maybe an intersection that has three accidents in one month. Mm-hmm. And uh, from a data standpoint, that represents a, a high accident location. So what we also say, I believe, in, uh, in that section of the report is that um, the community has to assess where traffic enforcement, and this, this goes back to community-based policing, the community has to decide where traffic enforcement lies in the scheme of importance. Now, we received a number of emails and heard from, as Rich pointed out, uh, from some people in the listening session that did want uh, more traffic enforcement, uh, speeding in neighborhoods, speeding through business districts. So typically traffic enforcement is something that is expected of a police department, uh, even if accidents aren't out of control, even if they are on the rise. So the question for you then as a community in working with your police is to decide what do we want to enforce under what circumstances and where? And um, so it gets again thrown back to you to, to put that on your priority list and determine how you want enforcement. But I think generally speaking, some enforcement is expected as part of the Education, engineering, enforcement, that's traffic safety. Uh, All three of those components are absolutely necessary. And the department has been working on uh, uh, roughly a plan. Uh, They recognize that it needs to be a more formal traffic safety plan, not a traffic enforcement plan, but a traffic safety plan 
in which enforcement is just one of three legs. Um, so I hope that hope that helps. Yeah, Commissioner Larson, thank you. That's all my questions right now. Thank you very much for those responses. This is Commissioner Bowley. Um, I uh, would like to say thank you to everybody who's worked on this. It is a very comprehensive analysis. I appreciate um, you know Andrew Davis's work in getting the community engagement part. That's a very significant aspect of this. Um, I've just got one item that's really a follow-up on both Commissioner Ananda and Commissioner Larson's uh, comments and questions. Um, on page 33, the report makes really a cursory mention of the study of traffic stops in Douglas County. And Stu uh, did mention that it looked like they were going in a good direction, but I didn't see that in the report. But again, as uh, Commissioner Larson said, on pages 63 to 65, there's a significant presentation on traffic. And that culminates in finding number 18 and recommendation number 18, which essentially are you know, increasing enforcement of, of traffic. And I think, as you just said, it's really traffic safety rather than simply traffic enforcement. Um, I really appreciate that finding and the recommendation but I'm concerned that you may have missed an opportunity here to evaluate the framework of the study of traffic stops, not the data, but the framework of it. You could have considered how a continuation of that process past the end of the study would support recommendation number 18. Given what you've presented about community perceptions, I mean, it's gonna be important to continue gathering traffic stop data and to evaluate that data on an ongoing basis, uh, especially if we implement that recommendation. So do you have any advice on how these can be implemented together? And if I missed something, feel free to correct me. Thanks. Sure, Gary, Citygate. Uh, no, uh, Commissioner, your, your points are, are well taken and not fully fleshed out enough in writing and, and listening to you. The both your department and the city office of traffic safety definitely have, have data. There is a philosophical decision being made by Lawrence police at present that a dedicated traffic safety unit driven by data is a necessary assignment of personnel versus traffic being a conscious effort on everyone in patrol with data targeting certain things uh, for, for additional education or enforcement patterns. So, and there's, and the reason your current leadership believes that the generalist approach is best, it's because the severity of the data doesn't say we have so much pedestrian or auto mayhem, it takes an extraordinary level of specialist enforcement we can be generalist on patrol. So that's that's point number one. And it's a professional discussion. Uh, they heard us in earnest. Some of us would prefer a traffic safety unit. Some of us would prefer the path they're on, which is to have a data-driven generalist plan. They don't yet have a data-driven comprehensive traffic plan. So your, your observations are in alignment there. Shifting to the traffic stop study, they are, we've seen what they're collecting for raw data. They're asking all the right questions. Uh, we did, chose not to write much about it 
because we don't want to color by any means the perception of that study until it's released. So that's why we stayed fairly high level. They're collecting a lot of manual data. They're asking the right questions. Does that data need to be taken back to your traffic safety data and the types of other stops you're doing? And, and those three things become your traffic safety plan. And, 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 and the interim chiefs know that that's where they have to get to and that's what they're working towards. This Commissioner Bullitt, I guess what I'm trying to get to here is the idea that the uh, disproportionate minority contact traffic stop study shouldn't be stopping. Um, you know, it shouldn't just be a study. It should be an ongoing practice. I mean, that data should continue to be, you know, uh, pained and evaluated. I, I didn't see that in your report. Uh, sorry, we didn't we didn't f f frame it quite that way because we made other points about data collection across the board, and that's certainly one uh, that could have been made. Uh, your department's not collecting enough data on multiple issues, multiple issues. So how do you plan engagement if you're not if you're not measuring and looking for for hot spots or pat or patterns that they need to double down on? Uh, so we weren't dismissive of traffic from that standpoint. Uh, we were perhaps too generalist in our in our recommendation to get another analyst and to really do data-driven community engagement and policing. And traffic's just gonna just gonna flow from that. I will tell you they're working on a traffic plan. Both interim chiefs get it. They know you have a traffic safety you know unit in the city. They know you have data. They're not waiting for the traffic stop data to do their other enforcement education and engineering plan. So don't let us try to say they're, they're waiting. Could we have talked more about that engagement in, in hindsight listening to you perhaps? Uh, what I meant to say we wanted to tread lightly was on the disparate stops data, is it essential? Absolutely. Is it essential it goes on forever? Absolutely. Again, our capstone comment, what gets measured gets done. You can't tell Officer McFriendly, I won't even use Smith Jones or I don't, <laughs> you can't tell Officer McFriendly operate this way if you never measure what is, is happening, A. B, if you set traffic safety goals, are they on the decline or is the problem increasing? Yeah, are your techniques of education, engineering, and enforcement missing the mark. Um, uh, I will tell you, by the way, you know, out, out where I live as full employment returns, uh, I, I think a whole lot of us have forgotten how to drive because in the middle of a pandemic, uh, the highway patrol is saying speeding just got crazy bad because the, the big roads were all but empty. And now everyone's back and it's forgotten how to be polite to each other in, in traffic congestion. But you got to follow the data. And, and, and maybe we just over overdid it at 50,000 feet, but that's one of 20 findings that has data behind it. Dude, Commissioner Gold, I appreciate that clarification. Thank you very much. If I could add, in addition, we touched on this obliquely when we talked about HR 1280 because uh, whatever version becomes law, I believe will have a version that addresses data collection and that will require states to collect the kind of data all the time 
that's being collected in the study. And we note that in the report. And we also note that that um, the department should take a very close look at its RMS and its data collection system to see if it could comply with 1280 as it stands. And if it can't, then maybe it should look for something that, that can because we anticipate that uh, what you're talking about will become the standard in law enforcement across the country. Mayor Finkel, I, Vice Mayor Shipley probably has some questions as do I, but probably should, let's take a 10 minute break, come back, um, ask a few more questions and we'll go to public comment after that. So let's take a 10 minute break and return at, uh, I guess, 8.30. Mayor Finkelby, it's 8.30, we're back. I'll go ahead and take roll call. Vice Mayor Shipley? Here. Commissioner Nanda? Here. Commissioner Lawson? Here. Commissioner Bully? Here. Mayor Finkelby, I'm here as well. Commissioner Bully, were you done with questions? Maybe go to Vice Mayor Shipley or? Yes, thank you, Mayor. Commissioner okay. Bully. Uh, Vice Mayor Shipley, thank you, Mayor. Um, I do want to go real quick back to um, a distinction, um, Stuart, that you made uh, between an oversight board and a review board. And in trying to parse out, you actually mentioned it a couple times, and trying to parse out what you um, might be meaning by that, I'm wondering if what we really wanted was both and um, have saddled one board with too much work. Um, does, does that sound like a possibility? Uh, Stuart Gary, Citygate. More, more the flip of a, a narrow scope without uh, much data and, and things to work on, which leads to saying, well, are we getting everything? And that gets back to informal, untracked, unauditable complaints, right? So uh, what we're opening the door, if you look at the literature and some of the footnotes uh, we, we gave you when we discussed this, and, and Rich is going to jump in here and he's got, uh, as does Tim, uh, extensive experience. You could have just a complaint review process that is, is input to the city manager, obviously, and the district attorney, I, I suppose. It's, it's input. They're not final chief deciders, right? Their, their review. If, if, however, you wanted as a commission to have an oversight board take some of the, the weight of listening to new policies and procedures and getting public input on them instead of agendizing everyone for a significant amount of commission time, like you have other boards and commissions who are listening advisors to the city commission, you, you, you could have some, some oversight functions in that next generation uh, ordinance. Uh, Richard, your thoughts? No, I, I agree, Stu. The, the, the oversight piece, that's, a, that's a kind of a taller hill to climb given, I don't know the, I don't recall the terms of the board. I think you'll need a board probably serving longer terms so they fully understand the policy issues, 
um, all of those oversight issues of complaints and how complaints are handled, complaints are addressed, and, and the policy and practice and training implications and equipment implications of all of those policies. Um, it's, a, it's a heavier lift. I, I saw it uh, where I, I came from. I, don't, I would recommend you, you not get into a, um, a board that, that also investigates in addition to the professional standards division. You have duplicate investigations. I think that was an issue that district attorney had some concerns with too, multiple investigations as there's probably or likely in some cases a pending criminal investigation or criminal prosecution. Uh, I would recommend to avoid that a redundancy, if you will. There's so many different options out there that you can take um, between oversight and review, review of certain items as there was before, uh, bias-based issues and complaints and policing was the limited focus before. If you want to expand that, I think you'll need, a, of course, more training of the board, greater transparency while protecting the rights of your employees. It's a heavier lift, the broader oversight is, I should say. I, I would also direct it to page 108 uh, of the report where the four typical types of um, review structures uh, can be found uh, anywhere from, well, you know, number one, to number four, an auditor, uh, which the Topeka Police Department has, for example. But as as Rich points out, uh, this is this is talking about citizen review, which is review of things that have gone wrong somehow or that allegedly have gone wrong. The oversight, uh, as as Rich says, is um, is more more encompassing, more forward looking, because that's and that's kind of where the community policing can really have its nexus. That's where. Uh, for example, as the agency transitions to accreditation, they are going to have to write a new policy manual. Now, it won't have to be from scratch because much of their current policy is in compliance with CALEA standards already. But as those critical high priority policies come up, uh, and let's say you have a, a, an oversight board, the police department could then present. This is what the standard is, national standard. Um, this is how we propose to do it, how we propose to train it. And the the oversight and the police, they work together to project a future of policing for Lawrence. Whereas, the, as is clear from the review, it's clearly about what has happened and, um, and was investigated properly and whatnot. Uh, and the oversight um, community policing is more about what will happen uh, when in the future moving forward to. And that is a, that is a, a very complex, um, very complex undertaking, but uh, many places uh, I, I think would, in my personal opinion, that's the best choice because you have both the community and the police working together in crafting what the future of policing in Lawrence is going to be based upon what the community of Lawrence wants and needs. Sure, Gary. In, in conclusion, we, we described those types. We want you to have the conversation with multiple points this time. Just, just choose as a community, this is in, in or out, and then shape the rules, the procedures, the data flow to, 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 to meet your, your, your goals. And I don't, we don't think there was enough of that on the first try. 
So, so take a, take a second lap around, around the issues and as a community build consensus about, uh, those different types of review and or oversight boards. Uh, I would not call it a police commission. We're clearly not advocating for that. We're not saying give it powers uh, uh, reserved only to itself. It's advisory like your other boards and commissions. You have a city manager form of government. You have an elected commission. Uh, the, 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 the final deciding is always with your appointed chief executive and, and all of you sitting as a commission of the whole. And we would recommend you, you, you retain those powers. Uh, Vice Mayor Shipley, that's great. That leads well into my my next um, inquiries. Um, there's an interesting um, statement here about Lexapol. I think the only one that I noticed um, uh, the command staff felt um, that most accountability issues could be handled through continued institutionalization of the department's Lexapol third-party policies. So first, I want to clarify because there there is maybe some controversy out there about Lexapol and what it is and what it does. My experience of it so far has been that it is a tool, like a framework, and that we have used it, um, former chiefs have used it, to um, personalize things to what Lawrence's expectations are. Um, but using it as an example or, or what other cities are using it as um, their best practice. Um, and, um, you know, in reading the police manual, which I have, um, uh, I, I notice a lot of things that aren't personalized. And so I could see how, um, if, if, if this is an accurate statement, if that was how um, the police felt, that there might be a little bit of a disconnect because we certainly haven't gone with a fine tooth comb as a community through um, our, our policies um, to, to tailor them specifically to what we expect our police to be. So um, do you have any comments about Lexapol as a tool in general? And um, what were your, you know, to me, I would, I would sit down and go through the police manual with the police and hear what they have to say. I think that'd be a learning opportunity for the community or like you say, for an advisory board. Um, I certainly could understand that feeling very invasive um, to police officers. And, you know, for the most part, that has been administrative decisions and occasionally things will come by us, but ultimately they use their expertise to make those decisions. So I, I wonder what what your thoughts are about that. In, in brief, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not gonna dodge the question. I'm gonna come back to Lex Paul in a second, but let me give you the overarching recommendation. You have to have policies. Policies have to be followed universally, and they have to be hardwired to training, performance evaluations, departmental, legal, community oversight. What's your now? How do we get a book of policies? Well, older departments have have wrote their own. Lexapol as a service came along and said, there's a lot of legal research. And as you know, case law in America is built up through cases, right? And different appellate levels. And it's tough for smaller police departments to keep up with change. 
So they publish what we would call an erector set or a template of policies. And frankly, too many departments just say, oh, scratch, this, scratch that one off the list. We got a book of policies now. So I think anecdotally over time, some of yours were tailored. Not enough were. Not enough were given community scrutiny as to, as to fitting the values of Lawrence versus the values of ACME you know, USA or the dry reading of the law versus intent of the law in, in, a, in a character value-driven sense. And so what you're, you're saying, you're, you're hearing us say is really tailor all your policies. If you're gonna adopt something like Lexapol, you've got to look at every one of them and you've got to build training and oversight and evaluation criteria to enforce all of them. A policy book can't be a gotcha book nor is it a shield uh, uh, of excusing uh, uh, outlandish behavior. Um, you're not yet consistent with weaving it all together. You gotta get there, you gotta get there um, and use the service for what it is, which is as, as a starting point. Tim or Richard, uh, you wanna add anything? To the, the one advantage I found of Lexapol, again, Richard Word of CityGate, I'm sorry, uh, is the legal updates were a, a tool that that uh, in an agency I was chief, we adopted because we didn't have the resources to go out and always to, I, I wasn't confident that we were getting timely legal updates and then incorporating those changes in the law and policy. And then another service, and I don't know if the Lawrence Police Department is using the service, they had a daily training bulletin uh, where you could uh, provide training almost every workday at briefing. And it, it amounted to, I think, uh, maybe another two or three, four days of training each year. So that was a valuable tool. But in one agency where I was, we could not customize Lexapol enough um, to meet the needs of that jurisdiction. So we didn't, we didn't buy that service. In another agency, we did buy it. Uh, because I like the legal updates and the daily training bulletin. They say every day is a training day. And I like that idea. It has to be customized, um, personalized to, to Lawrence to work, but no policy is sufficient to hold your people accountable. A policy is only as good as, as that which is enforced by supervisors. Um, and so you could, you could have a beautifully written and customized policy manual. It has to be enforced. Uh, let me add that they, um, they do use the training bulletins. That was one of the aspects that attracted uh, Lawrence to Lexapol. Um, this is more of a, to use uh, a term, a phrase to use is a crawl, walk, run. So um, Lexapol is an improvement over what they had. And um, we're not trying to indicate in the report that, oh, we've got Lexapol policies now, we've tailored a few of them, we're, we're good to go. Uh, they are constantly working on policies, which is one of the primary roles of the special projects uh, division is to constantly tailor and look and examine policies. Uh, yeah, you're right. Some are tailored more than others. That's very clear. And when you've got that much policy, it's a long process to make everything tailored to um, to a specific jurisdiction. Now, the, one of the things that differentiates Lexapol as a service from, say, uh, accreditation, CLIA, their requirements is that CALEA includes uh, regular reporting, the accountability. Every quarter, 
semi-annually, annually, um, constantly proving that you're doing something, which is what accreditation is. They come in and they look and see that you're actually doing what you say you're doing. And um, having Lexapo will make the transition to CALEA easier because as Stu pointed out, it is a collection of national best standards um, and it will continue to be personalized as it moves forward. Um, so that's that's what their, their plan is. Um, it's better than what they had. And I think the staff recognizes we still have a ways to go and they believe that accreditation will help them do that. Vice Mayor Shipley, thank you all for that. Um, uh, the next thing kind of is, you know, um, you do occasionally throughout the study use best practices as a term, and sometimes you indicate where those practices come from. Sometimes you don't. Um, uh, but something I found interesting that was maybe a little lingo-y that I think the public might be interested in um, uh, kind of starts with the clearance rate and how that can possibly be misleading or misunderstood. Um, but it also talks about um, changing to focused deterrence and and that this is an evidence-based practice, but it doesn't quite explain what that is. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? You, you bet. I'll have Tim uh, take first a bat and let Richard uh, follow up as necessary. So, uh, Commissioner, if I understand your question, are you talk, wanting to talk about both the clearance rate and, okay. So, um, a case can be cleared, and when we say cleared, we're talking about by FBI standards. Uh, police departments report uh, crime data to the FBI. It's not, not mandatory. Some agencies don't, but they report crime data to the FBI. So when you talk about a clearance rate, you're talking about FBI definitions of what a case clearance is. Everyone has a, has a different idea in their mind of, you know, what does it mean when a cop says that we cleared that case? It can mean a million different things. But in the context of this report, it means what the FBI says it means. So a case can be cleared by an arrest. A case can be cleared um, by um, prosecution, prosecutors declining to prosecute. A case can be cleared by the complainant withdrawing the complaint. A case can be cleared if the suspect uh, dies. So for all of those things to happen, and this is, this is really an important point that even many police agencies miss, in order for any of those things to happen, you have to have um, probable cause that the named suspect committed the crime and you know where that suspect is and you could find them and arrest them if you wanted to. Um, what frequently happens, and I allude to this in the report is that um, I'm looking at a, what we call a counter battery. Uh, he hit me, no, he hit me. And there's, there's no evidence, there's no witnesses. And um, I, as a detective, call up one of the parties and, and say, hey, what do, you, what do you wanna do with this case? 
and the party says, nah, just, I, I don't want to do anything with it. I, I, I just want to drop it. So that's not a, can't, can't be counted in FBI terms as a clearance because there's no, I've got no evidence to arrest anybody in this. What that is, is an inactivation. But many agencies will call it a clearance. Hey, I've got somebody said this guy did it and he says he didn't want to pursue it. So that's a case cleared. And it artificially inflates clearance rates. And there's no, while there is an FBI standard, um, believe it or not, there's a common misunderstanding in policing about what it means to clear a case. So when you talk about a, a high clearance rate or low clearance rate, from a standpoint of a, an effective police department, you really don't know what that means. It, it, it doesn't mean much of anything except whoever put in those numbers, that's what it shows. So uh, did that make any kind of sense? Help, help me, because you're right, the, the general public doesn't often understand what that means. Uh, second to the focused deterrence. So there are a couple of things for which there's really strong evidence that the police can impact crime and disorder. And I mean, empirical, um, randomized controlled study evidence. Hotspot policing is one of those. In fact, it is the, the most researched um, strategy for reducing crime and it does work. In other words, focusing on those small number of places where most of the crime happens. So in Lawrence, 5%, and I can say this is in Lawrence, this is in Topeka, this is in Moscow, 5% of, of, of the, the area, location, street segments in Lawrence are going to be responsible for 50% or more of the crime. That's just, it's just how it happens. So as a police department, you focus on those 5% because you only have so many resources. So if I'm a weatherman and, um, and I have limited resources, I can't stop everybody's rain, but I can stop that little storm. Uh, everyone else may get some rain, and that's unfortunate, but no one's going to get their house blown over. So that's that's hotspot policing. Uh, the same applies to offenders. Uh, the data is very, very solid in that roughly 6%, and you can call it 5, 10, in the neighborhood. But generally, 6% of offenders are responsible for 60% of the crime. So what focus deterrence is, is identifying who those, who that 6% is, and then focusing your deterrent efforts on them, because you'll have a greater impact on crime than if you try to go after everybody. And a good focus deterrence program, you end up arresting fewer people than you otherwise would have, because you're arresting the right people, and you're providing um, alternatives to arrest for others because they're not part of that 6%. So in focused deterrence, you identify who is that small number and you work on how to incapacitate that small number. And that's what focused deterrence is. So uh, hotspot policing and focused deterrence um, are two of the things that have been most proven that the police can do to reduce crime. Or Gary Citygate and a capstone that the more you engage with the community, the more you have focused deterrent tools, including intelligence in, right? And putting the word out 
We know what's happening at the corner of walk and don't walk. And, and, and you've got in, in, in informants or business owners or residents telling you things. And, and the word gets out in the street that Officer McFriendly's really focused on the corner of walk and don't walk. Tread, tread, tread carefully because arrests are up and the community's talking to, to, to the officers. So that engagement thing is a huge two-way street uh, uh, tool uh, when you're, you're, you're focusing on those areas. I'll leave you with this thought, data-driven. Fire and EMS has the same problem for, for uh, emergency medical, mental health, and street medicine issues. Small numbers of patients, small cohorts at certain key locations drive the highest volume of business. Just, just the way the world works. And you've got to go after, quote, your, your frequent flyers in the emergency medical uh, professional lingo. Uh, Vice Mayor Shipley, thank you um, all for that. Um, another thing, a couple pages later, you refer similarly to um, encouraging them to use a solvability matrix which I think I understand the idea of. Um, but what I wondered is how does that interact with um, on a local level, for example, what officers know from experience won't rise to the DA's expectations and so they may not waste time on it. How do those things interact? Well, uh, this is another one of those community conversations that you have to have because um, you can't you can't investigate and you can't prosecute everything. Well, so what a solvability matrix does, and I, I think you're very aware of this, is that it identifies those elements of a crime which suggest a greater probability for being solved. So it's, it's, a, it's a way of triaging what you spend your time on and what you don't spend your time on. Now, it doesn't mean that a case that doesn't rise to a solve certain solvability level, it doesn't mean that you can't professionally, empathetically tell a victim. Um, I know this means the world to you, and it's a, it's a huge day because someone just stole this from you. But there's really unless there's additional information, there's really nothing that we can do about that. And you can say that in a compassionate, caring way, uh, rather than in the, in the old days, this is what, this is what happened. Uh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to sign this to a, this will go to a detective and he'll get a hold of you. And so everything goes to detectives and detectives are constantly making calls to citizens, just like I explained to you, whereas the frontline officer could tell the citizen right off the bat. Hey, there's, there's not a lot we can do about this. But if you wanted your police department to investigate everything, as a community, you could decide that. But there's also a cost to that as well. And, and only you can determine that. Our point in, um, in uh, calling that out is that's a good practice if you want to use the spare resources that you have wisely by focusing on those things that can't be solved. And it doesn't make it any easier for someone whose whose case isn't going to be investigated, but it's a it, it's a it's a way to use your scarce resources to the best of your ability. 
Um, thank you. Um, Vice Mayor Shipley again. Um, uh, the next thing up, uh, maybe I just would like to hear you, your all's um, feelings about this. It's about the recruitment and hiring. And um, I've, I've always been a little interested that while officers will often admit that a lot of what they do could also be diced out as social work, we never actually recruit from the School of Social Work. We, we never actually, we have one right here, um, and, and try to convince um, them to help rebuild the future of policing. Um, we go, you know, we, you mentioned in your report, we go to law schools or other programs like that. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, I understand they have not had a lot of success just with general recruiting from colleges, but I wonder about just completely new partnerships. Um, uh, it, it seems to me like that would be a win-win um, if people who were being hired to be police officers were already trauma-informed, were already um, trained in certain kinds of de-escalation. So in, in a nutshell, a, a traditional police department just opens up and goes to traditional few recruiting things and says, come on down, you want to be a police officer. Uh, having a strategy for recruitment says we need the following skill sets. You just enumerated some great ones, Commissioner. We're also going to put those skill sets in the job description as minimum or de highly desirable qualifications as you even apply to be considered further. And we're going to have a recruitment strategy that says, in addition to diversity, we want diversity of life experience, some professional training, and go to those market niches to recruit with an open mind to try to find the personality with emotional resilience and intelligence to different things to even begin the journey to be trained to be a, a peace and, and we didn't find that, that that coherent strategy and multifaceted outreach existed. Second, as you design new job descriptions, um, I don't wanna put a title in everybody's mouth, but it's an employee of the police department that has mental health and social work skills that goes to you know, non-peace officer events you're gonna add job descriptions that will have focused training and minimum entry qualifications that are really different. They're not generic. They're not come in with a high school GED, right? So as you build new job jobs, you'll build new job descriptions. And then your recruitment plan has to say, aha, we need social workers or with this mental health provider certification or this baccalaureate. And you've then gotta to go to the source of those people to recruit. You just can't open up and advertise a job description and hope the right person finds it. I would also add that, um, that as a plan develops and is part of an overall strategy, what the agency may find is that 
um, the people who are responsible for it right now, which is the training unit, may not have the capacity, at least in the beginning, um, to, to get into that depth, uh, to go to those places, uh, all those corners, because they are responsible for training the entire agency, academy classes. And I think that's one thing that we call out in the report is that training is saddled with a lot. And the more specialized, the more focused you want things to be, the more necessary it is to have someone responsible for that and sometimes solely responsible for that. And then sometimes that becomes a budgetary decision. Um, Vice Mayor Shipley again. Um, I, I do kind of want to hand out a, a little bit of a compliment. Um, I, I, although not everyone in the community may agree with this, but I, I felt that it is an asset that we do our own training and that we do additional training than possibly other places in Kansas do. I think you say it's 500 versus a thousand hours um, somewhere here. Um, in addition to that, although I'm sure it's also best practice, there's a lot of screening that goes in um, before they before a recruit even gets um, to that point. And um, I don't again think that this is public knowledge that there's um, psychological testing. Um, uh, and, and I just, I, I, although I'm, I'm not sure it's even compulsory, I'm not sure every um, police um, organization does it. I, I think it's um, to our credit that we are serious about it. And as far as I know, have been for a long time. So I don't know if you would like to speak to um, uh, the extent to which we train, although certainly we we all seem to admit there's some things we could add or subtract. Um, certainly the, the effort is there. Could you discuss that a little bit? I'd like to say as a capstone, we, we said I said early on, you have a solid traditional department that needs best practices, contemporary tune-up to lean into the social and policing issues of the moment and training training is a huge strong positive core value in the lawrence police department it's that academy it's the intake you adopted the field officer training program what five years ago four years ago tim uh that was leading edge at the time um that that's solid timber for you to build a better house on We'd be we'd be sitting here with different findings and recommendations if you didn't have good DNA for training. Training has to be rehoned, has to be oriented uh, to contemporary issues, but you don't have to convince your leadership and the rank and file that training's uh, eminently valuable. And that really is a, a strength. Uh, I'm going to have to correct Stu uh, because it's police training officer program, so you owe a quarter in the cup. Um, that's what we do when we transition. Uh, but the police training officer program uh, is uh, one that is based upon problem solving, emotional intelligence. Uh, it was developed by the, the COPS office 
in the early 2000s, and it's unfortunately not being used by most of American policing. It is being used by the Lawrence Police Department, so that's um, that's excellent. And uh, to rephrase what, what Stu said in a term that I think everyone will know because everyone watches, seems to watch home makeover shows, training has good bones. It's, it's very solid. Um, we just, we call it out because it needs to be connected as part of something as, so that it's a vehicle to accomplish something um, larger and something that's aligned with what the city wants and what the community wants. Um, but they, they do an excellent job of training. They are not afraid to bring in outside ideas. They recently brought in um, the, the best mind in reality-based training which plays into um, de-escalation and making sure that uh, outcomes of police encounters um, end as well as they possibly can. Uh, so that's what they spend most of their time on, which is why we call out the fact that they're also saddled with these other things as well, um, because someone has to do them. And it's going to be somebody's part-time job anywhere you shift uh, recruiting anywhere you shift background investigations, it's going to be somebody's part-time job because they've already got a full-time job. I'm getting close here, uh, Vice Mayor Shipley. Um, uh, sort of in that same realm, um, there's, uh, you're finding number 31 uh, about um, candidates that come in that already have experience or that are already um, peace officers. Um, the department hiring processes uh, differ depending on candidates' experience, modestly risking expediency over rigor. So I, I only wanted to say, to be fair, knowing how big their recruitment um, groups can be at the beginning and how small they can be at the end, um, I don't, I, I hate for that to come off to mean that um, they are willing to trade numbers for qualification. No, and that, that's why we um, we call it a risk rather than this is actually happening. Anytime, any organization, uh, because as everybody knows, it is becoming more difficult to recruit uh, anywhere, finding, finding people to work anywhere, uh, especially in policing. So when you get someone who is already a sworn certified police officer, particularly in the state of Kansas, that carries a lot of weight with it. Um, so there's a tendency to say, hey, we are we are short bodies. Let's get this person on board. Let's get this person trained. They've been a cop and have a good background already. Uh, people say good things about them. Um, so we're just we're just pointing out that it is it is potentially something could slip through the cracks. A little more easily this way rather than okay we're going to do it the same for everybody experience or no experience we're just calling out the inherent potential risk and something to be mindful of sorry uh vice mayor shipley um i think this is the last that i've got for you sorry everyone um i did want to touch a little on the crisis response team and the um and you don't call it crowd control you call it um mobile field force team um with the crisis response unit again I, I 
I read the police manual and I was thrown off by this because I didn't catch on to it, I guess, when I read it. But um, the interaction between the sheriffs and the Lawrence Police Department in these situations is um, quite close and um, as a commissioner or a Lawrence resident having ultimately no oversight of, of a separate um, a law enforcement agency, even though it's in the county, um, can make some people a little uncomfortable, feel like there's no oversight or accountability. Can you uh, talk about that as, is that a best practice? Is that fairly common? Is that, um, do you see any uh, problems with that? I'll have Tim address mobile field force in a moment, but commissioner, I, I think I also heard two questions. You started with mental health crisis response. What was your, your is there a more uh, specific targeted question on that half of it? Oh, no, uh, the, the okay. mobile field force. Yeah, that not mental health is something that no, sorry. <laughs> okay. uh, let me address that in a, in a couple of ways. First of all, um, uh, one of the people that we interviewed during this process was uh, was the sheriff, and uh, he had nothing but praise for the Lawrence Police Department and their cooperation between the two agencies. Um, is it a is it a good thing um, in the case of um, field force um, crowd control, whatever you want to call it? It's it's a necessary thing that these two agencies. Uh, work together because of sheer numbers. And um, we don't have anything to suggest that it's it's an issue um, between the two agencies. And I don't know if that's capturing your answering your question um, exactly the way you want it. I, so I guess I, I think your I, I think your question, your, the commissioner's question is Stuart Gary Citygate. Sorry. Who has the final say? And in multi-agency operations, there's the, the the technical right to have the final say, and then in something we call unified command in the broader world of emergency services and disaster preparedness, and you're all familiar with the term and EFC training. In unified command, even if the sheriff has technical final say, he or she would, at their peril, ignore leadership from the city of Lawrence in a moment of crisis saying, turn left 10 degrees instead of turn right 90 degrees. Uh, so I don't know, Tim, if you want to, under the, the laws yeah. of Kansas, want to re remark more than that, but what we heard from the parties was they do it together. They respect each other well enough to talk through the tough, the tough decisions and it's not one-sided by, by any means. No, there's no, there's no uh, Tim Haggerty sitting again. I'm sorry, I, I keep forgetting to do that. My apologies. There's no indication of any of any turf uh, wars um, potentially there. And, and Stuart is right. In unified command, it's not all even always, say from the police perspective, it's not always. Hey, the sheriff is uh, incident commander um, at a traffic accident, for example. Um, the incident commander is the first officer who is on scene. And in incident command, um, the sergeant who shows up doesn't automatically 
take over, doesn't automatically assume command simply because of his rank, that officer could retain incident command. Likewise, in, um, uh, say, a demonstration that requires the joint action of the city of Lawrence and uh, Douglas County Sheriff's Office, it could be a captain of uh, the Lawrence Police Department who is initially incident commander and the sheriff shows up and maybe the interim chief shows up and they decide, no, let's leave the captain as incident commander. And uh, then you have the unified command of all the emergency services providers. So it could work sometimes like that. Um, but there's no indication of, of any kind of friction, any potential that someone's going to want to be in charge and someone else is going to want to be in charge. I think there's a joint understanding of community safety and how are we going to work together to make sure this event, this incident ends the best way as possible. Everything live. Vice Mayor, you. Okay, I'll just, I'll ask a couple quick questions here before we open it up to public comment. And thanks for everyone from the public to hang on here. But, um, and the good thing about going last is lots of people have already asked the questions. I've been marking them off my list. Um, when you talk about developing a strategic plan, do you, when you use that term, do you envision that being a internal process? Um, you know, done by the um, the police department itself, or do you see that as a, a more of a community type um, getting feedback, working together, and create, coming up with a strategic plan? I just try to figure out how you use that term. I know there's kind of two types there. The the latter, and definitely given the character and culture of Lawrence as a community, and how you go about community planning in your own uh, commission strategic plan. And the need for community engagement and to re rebuild in some uh, segments trust with the police department. Absolutely. It needs to be done in partnership uh, with the community and, and different leadership stakeholders. Mayor Finkelai, well, good. I hope that was your answer. Okay. Um, go back to something you said at the very beginning. Um, and then we didn't, I don't know that we came back to it a lot. You said field supervision is key, and you said that a, a couple times. Um, and I guess as I listen to all the reports, and there seems to be a lot of things that are obviously very, very important out of this report, can you maybe focus me a little bit more on why you think that is such a key, a key issue that you highlighted that way? I'll, I'll let both uh, my, my peers jump in too. At, at a high level, uh, it's in your department a bit more so than others, but this is not a blanket statement. It's more of a compounding factor in Lawrence. It's juniority. You have younger officers at the lower ranks. And it takes time to build crisis problem-solving street smarts. And you don't always see everything in your, in your patrol training uh, career. You may be on the job four or five years before you're confronted with some unique fact pattern. I won't just say an outright tragedy, but just a unique fact pattern that the sergeant or lieutenant, if they're quickly available, says, oh, back up. 
let's let's take this from a from a different a different solution uh, angle and and um uh, the wisdom of years of experience are, are brought are brought to bear with, when you have frontline leadership. And and the the crude analogy I'll give you is the military, right? Platoon, you know, plat- platoon sergeants, you know, company captains. If if you look at the rank structure, uh, you want some lower level team level supervision, and they're uh, more fully trained, more seniority. More street smarts experiences. Tim or Rich, feel free to. Add. Uh, yeah, uh, what Stu said about stepping back a little bit. Uh, a responding officer is going to be this close to the problem, uh, what he's dealing with. A supervisor can come in and looks at it from a further back, a higher altitude. And say, okay, wait a minute. Let's let's slow this down. Let's let's take this step and let's take that step. And the younger the officers, the more compounded that is, as, as Stu talks about. So you have young officers, you have really young supervisors in many cases. Uh, generally speaking, going back to the military, also um, your non-coms, your frontline supervisors are really what determines how good of a police department that you have. Because the um, the average citizen, their encounter with the police department is that person in responding to the call or walking the beat or whatever, and that person's immediate leader is the frontline supervisor, is the sergeant, and so um, they can dictate kind of how the agency goes. Which is why we talk about um, having a patrol training sergeant, uh, someone who who is in patrol who's assigned to make sure that the training, the police training officer program uh, happens the way it should happen and coordinates with the training section and the command staff because it's it's critically important that uh, at that level, the best things possible happen with supervision, with officers in the field. And we go back to what Stu talked about at the very, very, very um, beginning. Um, you watch those eight minutes of uh, of the the death of George Floyd, and there's no there's no supervisor there. And and would that have changed? And, and nobody knows, but in my personal opinion, it would have changed the whole trajectory of that. So that's that's the critical importance of. And the the more critical the incident, the more important it is for frontline supervision to be engaged and be present. Mayor Finkel, I thank you on that. I think I'll stop there and we'll go ahead and open this up to public comment. Um, and uh, we'll do that and then bring it back to the commission. So if any member of the public would like um, to speak on this item, please raise your hand using your raise your hand function. Um, or if you're present, let Sherry know and she will call upon you. Um, and you'll have three minutes. Natasha Neal. Whoops, sorry. Natasha Neal. Thank you so much. I just want to touch, I want to um, touch, I don't remember who that was. I don't know if that was Tim 
or uh, I can't even, Mr. Stewart, um, that touched about George Floyd, like how if a supervisor was there, that probably wouldn't have happened. I totally agree with that. Um, also, since we were talking about George uh, Floyd, also want to bring up uh, Breonna Taylor and how important it is that we have a ban on the no-knock policy with the, the drug search warrants. Because from what I can hear so far, like there's not much supervision. Um, so we can't trust that everything the police officers have been doing been okay. And there has been instances where people have been targeted, not selling drugs, and they get their door kicked in. I think it's unsafe, especially at the time where we live, um, for the police to just be able to come in your house like that. And then not, especially if you're licensed to carry a gun, you may not know it's the police coming to your house. So I think that's very, very important. So we don't have any more Breonna Taylors. Um, another thing I want to talk about, I kind of paused when it was mentioned how fast LPD gave over the record, uh, the records and data information. Um, because that's, new to me, especially like in these high profile cases they have, and they haven't been very transparent with that. And then we know that most of the time there's a lot of racial bias, uh, periods of flaw, uh, flaws and things like that. So we can't even depend on that information to be accurate. I think we need an oversight board and it needs to be made up, uh, made up of the community. And I wrote so much stuff. I'm so sorry. And then, um, I don't know, did somebody say 94, there was only 6% of calls that came through the, nine, the 911, and then 94% of the calls was from, like, non-emergency numbers? I'm not for sure. If so, I could touch on that in a minute. And then, basically, what I got out of this is what we've been coming to the uh, meetings about for the last couple of years is talk about the racial bias within the police department, and I'm glad somebody else sees that as well. And that's pretty much all I have to say for tonight. I'll pass it on to other people because it's kind of getting late. So can somebody ask a question? From the the uh, the group, because they are the ones that said, it. are they gone? No, the, you know, we'll, we'll have them in. You asked about At the, the end. six. Okay, thank you. The full we'll ask that. All right, thank you. Mario Ferrero. Yeah, my name is Mario Ferrero. I'm a Lawrence community member. Um, first, want to thank Kasha for um, for speaking on I think things that are prevalent in this community and all agreed upon, and for CityGate for um, reviewing the police and giving us these recommendations. Um, I'm here tonight representing Sanctuary Alliance and we have a quick statement. Um, so on the 2021 budget, there is over $28 million representing 9% of the annual budget for the police department. Whereas the budget does include about $1.1 million representing only 1% of the budget for public health. Only municipal services and operations receive a greater budget allocation than the police department. Based on the budget alone, it seems that policing is the second highest priority in the city. According to the 2020 strategic plan, it indicates that both strong, welcoming neighborhoods and a safe and secure community are important strategic outcomes. Sanctuary Alliance agrees with this. 
strong, welcoming neighborhoods should provide people opportunities to lead healthy lifestyles with access to safe and affordable housing and essential services that help them thrive. And a safe and secure community should be a place where all people feel safe and secure and have access to trusted public and community-based safety resources. It is important that we do not confuse the priority of safety with prioritizing traditional police practices or policy in any form as a substitute for how an individual experiences safety or security. The report includes a statement, police are the most visible and interactive element of local government. This may be true currently, but we have to ask ourselves if this should continue to be true. Should policing be more visible and interactive than the provision of services which address the basic needs of our community members? CityGate then highlights this Lawrence community is affected by poverty, housing costs, homelessness, a high me medically uninsured population, and the people experiencing mental health crises. These are issues that the city and community are aware of and continue to work to address through systematic changes. The report continues that the city's first responder objectives and goals should align with these issues. And this is true. However, the first responders of the instance of crisis should be well-trained and equipped to guide an individual in crisis to the correct resource. The city must first invest more in the resources in which treat these individuals, not only in crisis, but addressing the contributing factors before an individual finds themselves in crisis. We are in a different political and cultural place than we were five years ago. Yeah. And the residents of Lawrence have made clear over and over again that they value significant divestment from policing and investment in solutions to harm and scarcity, particularly on the anniversary of George Floyd's, George Floyd's murder by a police officers. City leaders need to remember that this is a permanent shift, not a temporary one. We encourage the city to engage with the community to address the true needs of our residents and appropriately allocate the city's budget to fund the solutions and resources necessary to meet those needs. Fundamentally, we need a healthy, safe, secure community with food security, health care, including mental health care and safe and reliable housing for all individuals. A healthy community is preferable a preferable budget expenditure over police community. We Are must ensure that our budget reflects all these priorities. That's all I have to say. Ah, good timing. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Flowers. Hi, this is Chris Flowers. And what I like best about this report was the need for neighborhood watch. Now, a few years ago, there was this neighborhood watchman named Zimmerman. Now he was out patrolling his neighborhood when some thug wearing a hoodie attacked him. Luckily for Zimmerman, he had a gun on him so he was able to shoot and defend himself. My question is, what would have happened if Zimmerman hadn't been patrolling? What if there wasn't no neighborhood watch that night? I'll tell you what would have happened. That thug would have shot, would have attacked someone else, and that person might not have had a gun to defend himself. So that's why we need neighborhood watch. Here's the thing about minorities. You got your good ones, you got your bad ones. And the and the bad ones, 
they're going into these neighborhoods they don't belong and they're stealing and looting. And what neighborhood watched us, it allows us neighbors to watch out for the bad ones that don't belong in our neighborhood. Just the other night, there was a black man in, walking down my street and he had a dog, but he, he had his pants sagging. He looked like a thug. So I went out and I confronted him. I asked him what he was doing here. He said he was just walking his dog. Well, I know what thugs do with dogs. I said, are you walking that dog or are you going to a dog fight? He said, sir, this is a shih tzu. I said, I, just because you can't afford a pit bull don't mean you ain't taking that thing to the dog fight. See, I've seen boxing on TV. Before they had the super heavyweights like Tyson, they got these lightweights and the featherweights and welterweights so just because you got a shih tzu don't mean you ain't fighting that thing in some kind of small dog preliminary matchup so what we need is neighborhood watch with more people like me watching out seeing who doesn't belong in the neighborhood and calling the cops on them because we don't need some of these people in our neighborhood thank you Stephen Morris. Let me pull some information up here. You know what? One year ago, George Floyd was murdered by what Stewart correctly characterized as troops on the street, paramilitary, not police, not civil servants, police, paramilitary troops. It was a bad deal. And but these guys can't even say the truth about that. He was murdered. It's been adjudicated. It's only a matter of time until the guy gets his sentence. Where does the civil service department get off telling the town what to do? You see this word consistent and it's vastly different from comply. Chokeholds are not banned. It is allowed. Why can't these police people and their own, the consultants, because that's all they are, a police cobble, state, simply, we don't want to ban chokeholds and then explain why it's a necessary tool. The equivocation being used. I'm sorry, let's use a word that everyone understands. The lies point to a disingenuous understanding of what is going on in the community. This bullshit about culture. Every time you turn around, culture, culture, culture. Inside the police department, culture is what we're talking about. They don't want to change. Did you see how strong the resistance was to anything associated with oversight of the police? I was a social worker once upon a time. You know how many people you have overlooking your shoulder when you go and rescue children? You got a whole bunch. You just don't go do it. There's 4 million people telling you what to do, how to do it, when to do it, if to do it. Second guessing every fucking word you do. They want their webpage back. It was taken away because it was addressed only for their ideas. The idea is to make them a civil service department inside the town, not unilateral. What other department in the town gets to participate in all of these things telling them, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Well, you don't really like what you're telling us, boss man. This is some weird stuff. Lexipol, Lexipol gives the police 
carte blanche flexibility in all and everything. It's better than what they had, is what our men are telling us. What a joke. Hotspot policing, focused deterrent. That sounds like the new style of broken windows policing. Did that work? Training is all about David Grossman teaching about police and sheepdogs and the population being the sheep. The police department wants to control the community review board. It does not need or benefit from the input at the creation stage. The same group that ran a black police chief out of town. In addition to this town commission, which you guys haven't ever, ever said anything. These guys sound like a bunch of children who have been had their feelings hurt and don't know what to do about it. Oh, my God. For the first time in their life, they're subject to possible real oversight at the same time. A year later, what once started as progress has turned into an academic exercise for elitists and their resumes. The ordinance hasn't even been passed. It's been soft peddled by bureaucrats inside the city hall who are looking out for their very high paid jobs and their ideas of how to get along with everybody, but not the people in the town how to get along with all of the $100,000 a year income earners who suck off the tit of government for, quote, criminal justice. It isn't criminal justice. It's a way to pay the wealthy to stay wealthy. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. This is Sherry Reedeman, City Clerk. Is there anyone else who would like to provide comment on this item? Um, please raise your hand, um, or you can turn on your camera and raise your hand as well if you're not sure how to use the raise your hand function. Sherilyn Wells. I've observed when the police arrest people, they seem to sometimes toss them down on their head. Um, I, I don't understand why this is necessary. Sometimes it seems like people aren't putting up that much of a resistance, but you toss them down the floor. I'm afraid you're going to injure people that way when sometimes their crime is not that big of a crime. I don't, I don't understand that policy because uh, I think you could hurt people that way unnecessarily. Thank you. Is there any other public comment on this item? Looks like that's all the comment, Mayor. Mayor Fingal, I thank you, Sherry, and thank you for those comments. I did want to confirm um, Natasha Neal's question. Was it 96% to 4% or was it 94% to 6% on the calls? Yeah, yeah, yes, you, you have a very low number of 911 emergency calls compared to the volume of other calls coming in on the administrative line. In some communities, it's it's much higher. In other communities, uh, due to education, community culture, they they tend to call nine one one only 
in, in critical emergencies, not not for everyday serious issues. So you have a, a two phone number intake system in your community know, uh, seems seemingly knows what's a critical emergency versus uh, I need the police department's help, but it, but it's not critical. Tim, is there anything else to say on that issue? Uh, Tim Haggerty, City Gate. No, not not based on the data that we have. Well, can you give me the data again, just to make sure I have the right number? I was looking for that again. Let's try to find it here. It's without me finding the right slide in the PowerPoint. It's six. It's six percent. It was less than ten percent. Very, very, very small number. Six percent. Nine one one telephone interactions. Everything. I thank you for that. Okay, I'll bring it back to the commission for comments. So, for Brandon, maybe did you? You said earlier you might want to say something about which direction we go. Is that? Is this the time for that? Or what are you looking for from us? Yes, uh, Brandon McGuire, Assistant City Manager. Just to kind of wrap up um, the, the discussion tonight, and there was some really good conversation earlier about um, next steps and, and using this report, its findings and recommendations as a framework for subsequent um, strategic planning or master planning. Um, you know, I without without doing a review of our um, strategic plan, uh, you know, obviously, um, and, and uh, Marielle made a, a, um, some great comments uh, to the same effect, actually, that um, there are a lot of implications um, of the strategic plan with what we do next with this report. Um, and so uh, we will be very mindful of the six commitments and of the safe and secure outcome in particular, the safe and secure outcome, and our, um, our goal statements, our value statements, our KPIs, um, uh, that are embedded in the strategic plan framework as we undertake um, next steps uh, with this report. Um, there are sort of five um, kind of themes that I anticipate uh, once we really have a chance as a staff and as a leadership team um, to, to undertake uh, and, and reflect on the report. Uh, the first would be um, kind of an uh, opportunity for for leadership team to process, review, um, gain access to uh, to the back end data analysis, understand the methodology, um, and also get um, access to the data dashboards um, that will help us evaluate baseline um, where we're at as a baseline, and then and then evaluate progress as we move forward. Um, and, and measure uh, measure those important metrics um, that were in several of those data tables. Uh, and so kind of that the first step would be just more, more um, opportunity to really dig in and, and understand what we're working with. Uh, the second is to engage our employees um, and uh, start working with our employee groups. Um, the report does a nice job of organizing uh, findings and recommendations by several of our uh, our. Um, work groups in the operation. And so we'll, uh, 
sit with each of those groups, their leadership teams, their employees, um, and give them space uh, to provide additional feedback and begin uh, some of the the heavy lifting of um, filling out a, a sort of a, the, the the implementation plan. Um, we'll also do the same thing with some of our direct stakeholders and our business partners. Um, obviously, there's quite a bit of discussion about um, some of our county agencies, emergency communication, um, as well as uh, Burton Ash and in, in some of the work that uh, some of the coordinators are doing um, through the Criminal Justice Coordinate, Coordinating Council, as well as uh, Behavioral Health. Um, and, and so we'll engage uh, with those and others of our direct direct stakeholders, as I would refer to them, as well as our business partners, um, and kind of have those, those same uh, preliminary uh, review and, and planning conversations. Uh, we will engage with our community and uh, start to build the framework for how we uh, or how the department um, uh, begins building trust and building systems of community engagement and setting those expectations that are reflective of the community. And that will be an opportunity then um, to make sure that as we develop an implement, implementation plan or a strategic plan uh, based on this report, that it is continue, it does continue to be reflective of community input and, com and community goals. Uh, we'll also engage the Community Police Review Board. Um, we would definitely look to the City Commission for uh, more direction on that, uh, maybe at a, at a later meeting. Um, but they do have uh, a meeting in June, um, and they're meeting on a monthly basis at this point. And so we'll have an opportunity um, as early as, I believe it's the second week of June, uh, to, to engage with them um, and start talking about uh, the, the recommendations related to, to reapproaching uh, the authorizing ordinance in, in the project for that. Uh, and then we'd plan on coming back to the city commission um, with some, some recommendations related specifically to, to that project approach. Uh, and then finally, um, all of, all of these uh, different efforts, um, we will, we will tie together with um, the implementation plan or sort of the, sort of the master plan. Um, and we would hope to have that uh, ready for presentation back to the city commission um, in 90 days as the consultant suggests, uh, but we'll certainly keep the commission. I mean, th there's a lot here um, and obviously moving parts uh, on almost, it seems like a daily basis still um, with different pieces of legislation or different you know, ma major variables such as the recruitment of uh, the permanent police chief. Um, and so if we, if we have any sort of change in that timeline, then we'll um, proactively communicate with the city commission about that. So that's that's what we would anticipate as next steps. Um, the action tonight is is simply to receive the report. Um, the comments that you've made have been extremely in, insightful and helpful for me and the other staff who've been paying attention. Um, and we will spend some time debriefing uh, tonight's discussion with the consultant. Mayor Finkel, I thank you um, for those comments. You know, I guess I would say a couple of things, and I'm sure other commissioners want to add a few thoughts. Obviously, as you said, we're, re we're receiving the report. The actions that come from this, you know, will we'll come back to us or, you know, walk through staff at different times. So I, I know we'll see a lot of these things and a lot of these things we want to move on. You know, I, as with any good report, you know, there's some very technical issues in here, and some of them are very, very adaptive. I mean, you know, can we, 
community engagement and changing culture is very adaptive. Other things like hiring a training sergeant or collecting outcome data is very technical. Um, and so, you know, whenever I see a report like that, I think it's very important to, you know, decide, you know, both ends of that are, are we need to work on. Don't spend all our time on the easy technical things and skip the hard work of adaptive. But at the same time, don't dig so quick into adaptive, you miss some of the, the, the technical. And then obviously in the same regard, some of these issues are public, some of them are commissioned, and some of them are, you know, internal police operations, like, you know, how the PTO program works or whatever. Um, and so again, trying to figure out, I think it'd be helpful, Brandon, as we did with some of these others, when you bring these back to kind of help us and the community understand who's who's taking each one of these recommendations, who's you know who's who's owning it and, and who's helping lead that discussion um, so that we can um, you know make sure we get all of them covered by by somebody at, at some point even if the answer is we're not accepting the recommendation at least someone's going to consider it and and uh, move forward so um, yeah there's a lot there and someone said early on you know I'm gonna to have to go back and read this again I you know it's just so much there to 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 understand and I appreciate it. I very much appreciate the data that's in there. There's some great data points that we have now now can see and, and obviously it looks like we need some additional data to help us both be transparent but also to focus our operations. So um, to me that that's a very useful technical tool that'll help us in those adaptive changes. So a lot of good stuff in here, um, a lot of work to do, but uh, you know, I appreciate the work that's done. Other commissioners' thoughts? Kind of? uh, yes, Commissioner Larson, I'll just add a few things um, to what you said, Marin. Um, you know, it seemed to me like there was two, for me, two overarching issues that were kind of a thread that ran through the document. One is the the need to, to collect data, that we are not being a, a data-driven um um, department to where we can actually have outcomes versus just outputs. Um, and then the other was the need to align our, their, their plan or their long, long vision, long range plan with our strategic plan for the city and the need to do that as to what the community wants. So those are the two big overarching um, items that I pulled from this. And I, you're right, there's so much data in here that you're gonna to need to re read it a couple of times in order to get it all. But I, I do wanna just thank CityGate for all the work they put into this. I was, um, I have to admit at the beginning of this, I was a little concerned after our first meeting with them um, uh, during um, uh, commission night as to what we were going to get. But um, after meeting with them and then, you know, going through the process and what we're here tonight, I'm, 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 I'm very pleased with um, the results, at least what I can read so far. And I think that they did a very thorough um, job and had some obvious, really frank discussions with staff as well as the community. And I really appreciate that very much. Um, I also want to thank um, our, our staff in City Hall for the work that they did to coordinate all this. Andrew Davis, you did a great job of getting the groups together. I really appreciate that. And um, most importantly, I think to thank our community for the work that they put into this meeting with CityGate um, and having those discussions that were needed to be had, as well as the police staff doing the same thing and having these frank discussions. So thank you very much.
the Commissioner Ananda. I think that I'm really fortunate um, in this conversation to be part of the CJCC, um, to be on the Racial and Ethnic Disparities Work Group, to have done some defense work, um, and just have had my my foot in this arena through primarily sexual and domestic violence. But um, this is something about which I feel very passionately. And um, I think since June of last year, this has been something that um, I've been very impatient to move on. And um, this this was the, the point to which we were moving um, so that we could continue to look at those items. So for me, that is incredibly exciting and the opportunity to coordinate with our county partners as well as the CJCC in order to make some real change. Um, I think that I appreciate, I do appreciate that our strategic plan looks really broadly at community safety and we really are looking at adopting a holistic approach um, that acknowledges the really unrealistic expectations that we've put on law enforcement in um, kind of redefining their job as everything that um, doesn't fall under something else um, that might require a response in person. Um, I think that this is an opportunity to really dig into that data that was identified as lacking to see what kind of calls um, could be shifted under something like a crisis response team and how we can reallocate that funding in order to have that budget conversation around how we move these things forward. Um, that is a terrific opportunity for us and it's a really good first step. I do think that um, our our community, particularly our BIPOC community, is going to need more than a cup of coffee or 50 cups of coffee um, to really bridge that gap that exists within our community that isn't necessarily wholly the responsibility um, or that wasn't wholly caused by our community, but really a broader history um, and a broader cultural context that we have here where um, that's just going to take a lot of work and I'm really looking forward to seeing our law enforcement department stepping up to the plate and saying, how do we make real change in our community and create a safer community for everyone? So um, like I said from, from the beginning, this is a really good start, um, but not to quote um, something that's quoted a lot, but we have promises to keep and miles to go before we sleep. And I'm looking forward to that work. Mayor Pinkla, any other comments? Uh, this is Commissioner Bowley. Um, I want to thank everybody who's worked on this and provided input. Um, you know, bringing our communities together is so important. And and I appreciate the work that our staff has done. And, and you know, as Commissioner Ananda said, we have work to do, and I think we're up to it. Mayor, I also would like to um, thank everyone that helped us with this um, study. There's so much to learn. Um, I think this is an incredible opportunity for our community to um, understand what we need from our city and to take care of each other and to be engaged with each other. So I, I'm so grateful that everyone is able to help us um, with this very important move. Mayor Fink, I certainly echo all those thoughts and thank you and um, to CityGate and thanks to staff. And like I said, there's a lot of work ahead of us, but uh, 
it's, it's a good starting point. Thank you, Stu, and your entire team. Thank you very much for the, for the opportunity. Glad to be of service to, to Lawrence. And uh, someday we'll come visit and, and see Mass, Mass Street for ourselves uh, post-pandemic. I'm look, looking forward to maintaining the relationships uh, as necessary. Have a great uh, evening. Thank you all. Okay, with that, that's the last item on our agenda. So I guess I'd look for a motion to adjourn. This is Commissioner Ananda, I move to adjourn. Commissioner Bowley, second. There's a, a motion by Commissioner Ananda, a second by Commissioner Bowley. Commissioner Ananda? Commissioner Bowley? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Mayor Finkel, aye. Aye. Passes five to zero. Thank you very much. See you next week.